Reaching the Next, 13 Ways Churches Can Engage Young Adults, a Young Adults Today resource, written by a collection of young adult ministry veterans and read by the authors. Copyright 2021, youngadults.today, www.youngadults.today, all rights reserved. Dedication to the Church at Large, Romans 11, 36, for from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. To every parent, your prayers are being heard. To every pastor, leader, and volunteer, you are making a difference. To every young adult, you are God's plan A to reach the next generation in our world today. This book is for you. A note about this project. Reaching the Next is a book which came from the collaboration and work of 13 practitioners in young adult ministry from across the nation who each wrote one chapter on how the church can engage young adults in their faith and ultimately in the local church. A thought that came to my mind about a year ago which sparked this project. I love browsing Barnes & Noble bookstores with my wife, Micah. We went there one afternoon on a date and I began to look through some of my favorite sections like Christianity, leadership, finances, and self-help. It dawned on me then that as a college pastor or young adult ministry leader, there are no books that are designed to help you with your job there. So right then and there that afternoon at Barnes & Noble, I did something that you're definitely not supposed to do in a bookstore. I pulled out my iPhone and I confess that I searched on Amazon.com for books on young adult ministry. One or two might have popped up. I decided right then and there we had to change something. In fact, I remember being 21 years old and starting out in ministry, realizing there was very few resources, very little community or networking, and few to no books about young adult ministry. This is a topic I am deeply burdened by and incredibly passionate about. I reached out to a dozen friends, asking them if they could take a phone call. Each one of them took my call. Then, ultimately, they said yes that they'd pray about contributing to the project, and ultimately, what you're listening to and reading today in your hands is a God-sized dream. I'm deeply grateful and indebted to each author who gave of their words and their life and ministry experience to help this idea come to life and fruition. That being said, this is a collaborative effort, meaning there is more than one contributor. Each contributor has a unique voice. The editing, formatting, and revisions were kept to a minimum in an effort to keep each chapter fitting to the author and storyteller's voice. And for this recording of the audiobook, each chapter is read by the author. I want to thank and acknowledge each contributor for their hard work and their heartbeat. It took hours of prayer, time, writing, edits, tweaks, communications, calls, Zooms, and emails, and they were so diligent. In addition, I believe it to be a beautiful picture of the tapestry of unity in the kingdom of God for such sharp individuals to be willing to collaborate together. Our prayer is that when you pick up this audiobook, you will be personally encouraged, equipped, challenged, blessed, and inspired to seek the Lord's will for your life, your church, your community, and your ministry. Joel 1.3. Tell it to your children and let their children tell it to their children and their children to the next generation. Let's reach the next. Enjoy. Josiah and Micah Keneally.
Josiah Keneally has served for several years as both a young adult pastor within the local church as well as a campus missionary on a public college campus. Together with his wife, Micah, they host the Young Adults Today podcast and lead the movement of Minnesota young adults and pastor Normandale Kyalfa. Josiah is also the author of Debtless, Helping Students Take on Less Debt. The Keneallys have a daughter, Aurora, and reside near Minneapolis, Minnesota. For more, visit josiahkeneally.com. Chapter 1, Intentionally Reaching. Josiah Kennelly. One of the greatest issues in the church today is the missing link of 18 to 30 year olds. In most congregations, it's completely normal to see children and adults of every age except college students. Those who grew up going to youth group and church with their families are moving away from faith involvement by the time they reach young adulthood. Reaching young adults in your community doesn't happen by accident. It takes intentionality. In her groundbreaking book, Grit, Angela Duckworth uncovers a formula for why some people are successful and others are not. Her equation for grit is equal to passion multiplied by perseverance. In other words, passion times perseverance equals grit. She wrote that enthusiasm is common, endurance is rare. A call to perseverance. When you think about it, there's no shortage of passion. Pastors are passionate about young adults. Leaders have plenty of enthusiasm. There's a perseverance problem. We need to persevere. We have to stick with it. There's a massive need for grit and endurance. Similarly, Albert Einstein said himself that he wasn't more brilliant than others or actually a creative genius at all. He said that he solved problems and experienced the breakthroughs he did during his lifetime because he was willing to stick with them longer than other people. Oswald Chambers has an interesting statement. He says that God makes no passionless saints. I agree wholeheartedly. I've yet to meet someone who is truly on fire for God, who lacks fire for God. Paul wrote about his own level of discipline and intentionality in 1 Corinthians 9, 27. He said, no, I strike a blow to my body and I make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Paul knew a thing or two about endurance. One of my favorite episodes of the TV show Seinfeld is called Jerry the Mailman. During one scene, Jerry's neighbor Newman is up for the promotion of a lifetime to do the mail services in Hawaii. Newman has been hiding bags of undelivered mail in Jerry's storage unit. Newman tells Jerry that his dream is dead, and Jerry asks, You're giving up that easily? And Newman's reply is, I usually do. What becomes apparent is that Jerry wants Newman's dream for Newman more than Newman wants it for himself. That's how it is for us, too. Sometimes we want dreams for other people more than they want it for themselves. We are more committed to them than they are for their own dreams, just like Jerry was with Newman. When you really want something, you're intentional. Nothing can stop you. Not eight bags of mail to be delivered, not a disciplined nutrition plan, not early morning workouts, not prayer and fasting, not loving your neighbor, not coming up with a plan. Literally, nothing can stop you. Not by accident. 
Churches don't reach young adults by chance. Churches reach young adults by change. All this to say, when we look to Jesus, we see that the way of Jesus is the way of intentionality. He first loved us. He first chose us. He completely flipped the script. It used to be that a young person wanting to be discipled would approach the rabbi and ask to be their disciple. Jesus went out of his way to find 12 disciples. He asked them to follow him. He said, I want you to be my disciples. He later told those disciples, he chose that the world would know that they were his disciples by their love for one another. Jesus actually reached young adults intentionally. When he was 30, his disciples were likely in their late teens and early 20s. That sounds a lot like young adult ministry to me. He met them at their table. He had no expectation of them coming to him. He went to them. That's not just a method or a model. It's the mission. We would do well to take note. Another time, Jesus was speaking to large crowds and a particularly short man could not see, so he climbed into a tree to see. Jesus, again flipping the script of cultural norms, went out of his way to approach the man in the tree and said, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house today. Crowds are categorical. People are personal. Even in a crowd, Jesus found the one. Can you imagine with me? What would your church look like if a group of passionate Christ followers followed the perseverance of Christ and passionately pursued the next generation? If they are not coming to us, we must go to them. Jesus reached the lost. He raised the dead. He released disciples, empowering them to save sinners, strengthen saints, and send servants. Even when traditional models were for students to meet at their teacher's table, Jesus upset that method. He was the rabbi of all rabbis, the king of all kings, with a name above every other name, and yet he met the disciples where they were in the middle of their mess. That's reaching. I think the best leaders model. They learn it themselves, then they live it, then they lead it. They don't ask their followers to do what they aren't willing to do themselves. Never did Jesus expect these disciples to show up looking for him in the wilderness. He came to seek and save that which was lost. He went to them. He made the first move. The next move was theirs. That's reaching. What does it look like to be intentional? Reaching. I chose the word reach because to me it means to strain, strengthen, struggle, grab, go, get out of your normal comfort zone, get off the couch, go somewhere, do something. REACH, R-E-A-C-H, is also an acronym for relational, evangelism, active, connecting, and hopeful. I want us to take each part of REACH to heart as we begin to engage young adults in our communities. Relational. Dale Carnegie said, A person's name is to that person the sweetest, most important sound in any language. Relationships begin with a smile, an exchange of names, and friendships are formed. Where it all started, as it relates to relationships, is Jesus had a pattern of often withdrawing from crowds to pray, to spend time with his heavenly Father to pray, to delight in his Father. This is paramount. 
Before we start focusing on intentionally reaching young adults, we need to spend time with the Savior of our souls. He draws us near. Jesus touched people through personal relationships. He touched them both physically and figuratively. When I think of the relationships that have impacted me the most, I think of an example of someone who has continually pointed me to Jesus. When I was 14 years old, I went to youth group for the first time. Actually, instead of going inside the worship gathering, I found an empty classroom in a big church and hid under one of the tables. True story. Somehow my mom managed to find me and encouraged me to go inside. When I actually went into the service, I met a guy by the name of Brent Silkey. Brent took me under his wings in so many ways. I was invited. I was invited to youth group each week. I was invited to church on Sunday. I was also invited to Sunday school, to small groups, to retreats, camps, conventions, and conferences. Outside of church, we began to do life together in community. Brent started discipling me. We ran marathons together and began lifting weights as well. The story continues to be written to this day. Now that Brent has invested into me, I have the amazing privilege of doing the same for others. I reach up for mentorship, out for friendship, and down to offer discipleship. A lot like Moses had Jethro, his father-in-law, as a mentor. He had Aaron and Hur, his brother and friend, to hold his arms up as a part of community. He also had Joshua as his protege. We need relationships with every generation in our lives personally, and we need every generation in our churches. When you reach out to someone, just remember, you very well could be the only person they know who believes in them. You might be the only person who befriends them. You could be the only prayer warrior who prays for them that they have. The stakes of reaching out with relationships are sky high. Evangelism. The gospel is all about the go. It's actually impossible to spell gospel without G-O. Go. Going is at the core of Christianity. Jesus went out, outside the temple, outside the normal status quo. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. What is the gospel? Paul who used to kill Christians until his Damascus Road encounter where he stood before God and had sincere repentance with life change, wrote in Romans 5, 8, that God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There has never been anything like it before and never will be anything else like the gospel message of Jesus Christ. As Pastor Greg Laurie has said, Jesus came to pay a debt he did not owe because we owed a debt we could not pay. That's great news, the gospel. All too often, as churches and leaders, we wait for young adults to make the first move. We expect them to come to us. What if instead we took a bold step of obedience and lived out the Great Commission like Jesus says, truly seeking and saving the lost? with the approach of going to them, meeting people at their table, on their turf, and in their territory. My thought process has always been that if they aren't coming to us, then nothing is stopping us from going to them. Dallas Willard said, it's called the Great Commission, but when you look at it closely, you might want to call it the Great Omission, because what Jesus said to do here is rarely done. 
Evangelism and sharing the gospel are at the core of an external focus. The Great Commission is our mission and the methods of sharing our faith happen most successfully when we move beyond ourselves. When we move from an internal inward focus to an upward external and outward focus. Jesus did not promise this would be easy or comfortable, yet this is the mission. Evangelism is what we do when we are compelled by this great news that is for all people. It's sharing this message with someone who you know does not know, that they may know Jesus, be known by Jesus, and continue to make his great name known. There is so much more to say on evangelism and sharing our faith. And later in the book, you'll read an entire chapter by my friend Paul Worcester that is aimed at helping ministries gain evangelistic momentum. Active. Following Jesus was never meant to be a spectator sport. How can more people get off the bench, out of their seat, or the church pew? How can more people get involved in the game? By equipping the saints for the work of the ministry. That's great news because so many young people have a deep desire to get off the bench and into the game. The role of the coach is to call out greatness in the players. Paul explained that our role as spiritual leaders as given by God is so Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers to equip God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. Ephesians 4, 11 and 12 is the model and mandate for the mission of Jesus. Pareto's principle was that 80% of the work gets done by 20% of the people. I found this to be true in the context of local church ministry. The people who prove to be faithful in volunteering, serving, or leadership will often be discovered and asked to do even more. Same with paid church staff. Equipping the saints to do the work of the ministry is a requirement for pastors and leaders, not a recommendation. If you are wanting to activate and mobilize those in your church, I believe the place to start is to do something the vast majority of leaders overlook. Start by surveying people's spiritual gifts. Find out their stories, their passionates, their giftings, and their abilities. Similarly, asking young people how they envision themselves getting involved in the church. Secondly, comes to the place where most people start, the holes and needs. To take an honest inventory of the children's ministry, worship team, coffee, ushers, greeters, door holders, parking lot. And the downfall is that we put people in jobs and serving opportunities that they lack passion for. They are going to burn out at best if they even stick with it at all. The hesitation for many leaders is that the needs of the church will not be met. The reality, though, is that God has hardwired everyone in his kingdomly differently. God's goal for volunteers shouldn't be simply to endure hardship on Sunday mornings. When you learn to pair the needs within your church with people's passions and desires, the needs not only get filled, the people are fulfilled in the process. This resonates deeply with a generation that prioritizes making an impact over making an income. Connecting. Our role as spiritually strong shepherds to a generation is cultivating contagious community. This means ministering to both spiritual and relational needs. The two connections we should aim to bring together are vertical and horizontal. 
vertical being connecting people to Christ, and horizontal for connecting people to each other. I have a unique vantage point as a leader, and that is I have relationships with many of the individuals in our ministry. Most of them do not have this same connection with each other yet. One of my favorite things to do at Young Adult Nights is to introduce two people who walk up to talk to me at the same time, and then after I introduce them to each other, I walk away. It's beautiful because more often than not, those two individuals just became friends. I've often said that one of the ways I actually measure success within any young adult ministry or community is how long do people stay in the lobby after the gathering? So many times, our planned structured event was 7 to 9 p.m., including the after party, by the way, and I'm not exaggerating that it has been rare for me to leave an event before midnight. 20-somethings absolutely crave community. My wife, Micah, has influenced my thinking greatly through the concept of touch points. We want to be a high-touch ministry with multiple opportunities throughout the week for people to be exposed to the heart of Christ and participate in godly community. This can look like Sunday church services, lunch afterwards, small groups, young adult nights, mission trips, serving opportunities, even softball leagues, etc. The sky really is the limit. Hopeful. We are not a people without hope. Jesus hung on a cross so that we could hold on to hope. You are a pioneer. That means you are designed by God to break new ground. The work you are doing matters and it is incredibly meaningful. My friend Nick Nilsson said it this way. You are doing better than you think you are and God is doing more than you think he's doing. I know you're picking up this book because you're one of the passionate ones. The one thing I want to leave you with is never give up. Hold on to hope, stick with it, stay the course, run the race, fight the fight, hold nothing back, go all out and leave nothing behind. Young adult ministry is one of the hardest kingdom assignments I believe there is. Sometimes it feels like as a leader, you are misunderstood. Other times you wonder if you're even making a difference. This age group is one of the most transient age groups you can find. Also, that's not a bad thing. The reason for that when you stop and think about it for a second is that during the season of young adulthood, within a matter of years, an individual may seek their college degree, their career, their spouse, their house, and so much more among huge decisions. Having a kingdom perspective allows you to see beyond collecting crowds and compels you to dispatch disciples. You get to invest into students in one of the most impressionable seasons of their lives. This, my friend, is the opportunity of a lifetime. Barna Group recently did a study in 2020 that found only 33% of young adults know an adult who believes in them. That means that two-thirds, 66%, of young adults don't know someone who believes in them. That is one of the greatest tragedies. And we wonder why this same demographic is not involved in Christianity or in the church. The very group of people whose calling is to be compassionate is the church. If you're in young adult ministry, remember this. It's about sharing the love of the one who first loved us. Maybe you've been involved 
in investing in next generation at the local church for decades, and you need to be reminded of what it's all about. Loving the one. Believing in the young person who doesn't believe in themselves or God just yet. Chapter 2 is by Micah Keneally, who has served for several years as both a young adult pastor within the local church, as well as a campus missionary on a public college campus. Together with her husband, Josiah, they host the Young Adults Today podcast, lead the movement of Minnesota young adults, and pastor Normandale Kyalfa. Micah is also the author of Worth the Wait, Because I'm Made for You. The Keneallys have a daughter, Aurora, and reside near Minneapolis, Minnesota. More at MicahKennelly.com. Chapter 2, Impurity by Micah Kennelly. Four ways to live a life of purity. Whether you are single, dating, engaged, or married, we cannot argue that strong, healthy leaders are in short supply. If you are reading this, you are a, you are a leader or soon-to-be leader in some form of pioneering a ministry, taking over one, or wanting to strengthen an existing one. Or perhaps you just picked up this book out of curiosity and find yourself just wanting to grow in different areas of life. Wherever you find yourself today, I want to encourage you to keep going. But how do we keep going in a sick, broken, perverse world that is constantly taunting us with every opportunity of impurity possible? The answer is simple, Jesus. We all need Jesus to restore, redeem, and remind us that we are his children. And as his children, we are called to live pure and holy lives. We are reminded in 1 Peter 2.9, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellences of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. What a great reminder and honor it is to be called a child of God. I love to remind parents, students, and young adults that they are God's holy people designed to live a pure and holy life. Purity is the number one topic that I get asked to speak about, and every time I do, it is the most attended event. I speak at our annual SALT conference for Chi Alpha every January and have hundreds of young adults eager to talk about love, sex, dating, and waiting. They are desiring biblical sexual truth to be delivered in a godly and engaging way. If you are wanting to engage with young adults then start talking about things no one else is willing to discuss. Create a safe place where they can hear truth and process scripture. Remember, you are not God and you are not the Holy Spirit. You are responsible for yourself, not the decisions of young adults. But we need to provide them with opportunities to hear truth. God will do the healing and correcting. The Holy Spirit will do the convicting. And you get to love them where they are at and point them to Christ in the process. The definition of pure is... Simply this, not mixed or adulterated with any other substance or material. Love, sex, dating, and waiting are four words that cause every parent, young adult, pastor, and congregation to cringe. Four words that make every young adult squirm, adults blush, and pastors cheer. Well, at least that is how I feel about the topic of relationships and the four words young adults are wanting to know more about. Love, sex, dating, and waiting. 
pastors and ministry leaders have an amazing opportunity and privilege to share the biblical truths about those four exact words. Well, three. Dating is never mentioned in the Bible, but we cannot deny the importance of love, sex, and waiting for our wedding night. We know that the enemy's goal is to kill, steal, and destroy our families, our faith, our futures, and anything we put our hands to. But don't be naive. If we give the enemy an inch, he will take a mile. That is why it is extremely important for you as a leader to understand the fact that our words carry weight. Our prayers have power and our lives are influential. It does not matter if you are leading a huge young adult ministry or just starting out in your small apartment with a Bible study. The fact is that you are being watched and observed by those around you. It should be our passion to live a life that exemplifies Christ. Before we unpack aspects of those four ways to live a pure life, I want to make a few things clear. The last thing I want is for you to think that I am shaming or assuming that you are hiding this big, ugly sin. I also do not want to assume that you have it all together because none of us actually do. I am simply passionate about this topic and pray that you have a fight plan put together when it comes to the personal walk with God and your leadership. When the enemy comes knocking on your door, I want you to be prepared. William Gurnell says, It is the image of God reflected in you that so enrages hell. It is this at which the demons hurl their mightiest weapons. And Barry Monroe says, You are only as strong as your purpose. Therefore, let us choose reasons to act that are big, bold, righteous, and eternal. My prayer is that you will live out the life God has for you with a pure heart, a pure soul, a pure mind, and pure intentions. Let's take a look at how we can get started. Four ways to live a life of purity. Physical purity. When most people in the church think about the word purity, they generally think about sexual purity. But we are all called to live a life that is pure. Can leaders stay pure and live a pure life? This is a question that seems to be becoming more relevant in our day and age with sexual tensions, social media, and celebrity Christians. The answer to that question is yes, but that doesn't mean you won't be tempted to give up and to give in to any sexual tensions that come your way. The good news is that we have the word of God to, make, to help make us more like Christ in every way. Where are single leaders at? I have not forgotten about you. I have to be brutally honest and share a newsflash with you. If you think temptation goes away after you are married and have sex, well, it doesn't. That is why it is critical for every single person to heal and deal with their sexual temptations, addictions, and problems prior to marriage. What you don't deal with in singleness will bleed into every dating relationship and future marriage. The last thing you want to be is two broken, hurting, half people longing to be whole. Take time to get yourself together. Marriage is a blessing from the Lord, and it is two whole people coming together to create a whole and healthy marriage. You can't experience wholeness in a relationship if it is built on a lie or a half-truth. It needs to be built on Christ and honesty from the beginning. 2 Timothy 2, 23-24 instructs us to run from temptation that capture young people. Always do the right thing. Be faithful loving, and easy to get along with. Worship with people whose hearts are pure. Stay away from stupid and senseless arguments. These only lead to trouble, and God's servants must not 
be troublemakers. We must be kind to everyone and they must be good teachers and very patient. Every leader has a weakness and unfortunately the enemy knows what it is. It can be sex, money, power, social status, pride, the list goes on and on. The amazing thing is that we can invite God into our weakness. When we are weak, he is strong. In fact, when we reach the end of ourselves, that is just the beginning of God. Psalms 121.1 encourages us to, I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Let's not be leaders who make excuses and choose to live in secret sin. Just like in James 1, 13 through 15, tells us to remember, when you are being tempted, do not say, God is tempting me. God is never tempted to do wrong, and he never tempts anyone else. Temptation comes from our own desire, which entice us and drag us away. These desires give birth to sinful actions and when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. God tests us, but it's our own selfish desires that tempt us. Do not be a leader giving in, giving in a life of temptation. Find a group of accountability partners, get social media safeguards, and put them in place. If you are dating, have physical boundary conversations prior to dating and put in a label on it. Ask hard and challenging questions. So here's an example. What are your intentions? 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 through 5 says this, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that and you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Remember that your body is a temple that represents God and the decisions you make. Everything you eat, drink, say, how you dress, how you exercise or don't exercise is a testimony to the people you lead and the people you don't even know yet. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6, 18, saying, Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Andy Stanley says, we write the story of our lives one decision at a time. The truth is that you reap what you sow. Job 4, 8 says, my experience shows that those who plant trouble and cultivate evil will harvest the same. We are all a byproduct of somebody else's fruit. As a leader, you have a responsibility to live a pure and holy life. I didn't say sinless and mistake-free life, but rather a pure and holy life. Whether you realize it or not, you are producing fruit. Fruit in your personal life, fruit in your home, fruit in the workplace, fruit everywhere you go. The two questions you need to ask yourself are, what kind of fruit am I sowing and what kind of fruit am I reaping? Have you become low-hanging fruit that is ripe, ready to be picked and taken to the next level of leadership? Or are you... Or have you become poison in the waterhole, meaning that you have become a piece of rotten, nasty fruit laying on the floor with no passion for God and leading? I want to encourage you to press into the pruning, transformation, and the sanctification process. We know that all sin separates us from Christ. Sin separating us from the heart of Christ needs to be put to death. A part of that process is putting to death our own flesh and desires. 
Oswald Chambers would call this the death side of sanctification from Thessalonians 4.3. This is the will of God, your sanctification. Chambers describes sanctification as this. In sanctification, God has to deal with us on the death side as well as the life side. Sanctification requires our coming to the place of death, but many of us spend so much time there that we become morbid. There is always a tremendous battle before sanctification is realized, something within us pushing with resentment against the demands of Christ. When the Holy Spirit begins to show us what sanctification means, the struggle starts immediately. Jesus said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own life, he cannot be my disciple. From Luke 14, 26. Begin to ask the Lord to heal your heart. Reveal any sin and begin the process of purification. The truth of the matter is that we are never going to be perfect, but we do serve a perfect God who can wipe our sins away. The purification and transformation process is a never-ending battle and blessing designed for us to become more like Christ. Romans 12.2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We are in need of constant renewal every day, every moment, and sometimes every second. Emotional purity. The American Academy of American Physicians says emotional health is an important part of overall health. People who are emotionally healthy are in control of their thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. They are able to cope with life's challenges. They can keep problems in perspective and bounce back from setbacks. They feel good about themselves and have a good relationships. Taking a personal inventory and evaluating your thoughts, feelings, and behaviors is a great exercise for every leader. Why do you do what you do? How do you respond to and handle stress? Do you have a group of friends you trust? Who are you doing life with? What needs to change? Or what needs to stay the same? What thoughts am I thinking? What is holding me back? Because emotional purity is a tangled web that embodies thoughts, feelings, and behaviors, we need to uncover any lies or roots that are preventing us from being fully free. It can be a thought that we need to continually take captive, like 2 Corinthians 10.5 instructs us to demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. If you are in need of help, there is nothing wrong with asking. Asking God, going to a prayer counselor, finding a Christ-centered counselor to faci- or facility that can help you identify any unhealthy behavior, thought patterns, trauma, or sin that may be holding you captive from experiencing the full freedom when it comes to emotional purity. My prayer is that you experience a full resurrection power and experience breakthrough when it comes to emotional health. Spiritual purity. I personally believe that purity can only be desired, lived out, and pursued as we continually spend time with God. I mean spending deep, meaningful time in prayer, in his presence, in his word, and in his will. The more we fall in love with Jesus, the less likely we find this world attractive and inviting. We all know that King David wrestled with purity, and yet he was known as the man after God's own heart. In Psalms 119.9, David asks and answers his own question. How does a young person stay on the path of purity? 
by living according to your word. Get in the word of God, memorize scripture, and live it out. You are no longer a slave to sin, but a new creation designed to live a holy life. 1 Peter 1, 13-16 says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as... He who called you is holy. You also be holy in all your conduct conduct, since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. Dr. John Piper says, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. So, I will ask you the challenging question. Are you fully satisfied in him? Is God your everything? If every title, accomplishment, accolade, success, and responsibility were stripped of you, would he still be your everything? God has put you in a position of leadership to steward, love, and cultivate lives around you. You are supposed to be building his kingdom, not your own. So I will ask you, are you being polluted by the world? The moment an opportunity to build God's kingdom becomes an obligation is a good indicator that your spiritual purity has been compromised somewhere along the way. I know because I've been there. I have wanted to rob God of the glory, have my name on something or my name attached to something that I have accomplished versus giving God thanks and glory. My spiritual compass had become polluted and I was no longer pointing due north after the heart of Christ. So I ask you again, are you being polluted by the world? James 1.27 says, Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. To put it simply, spend time in God's presence. Read the Bible. Pray. Thank God. Give Him glory. Take time to truly spiritually grow relational purity. Whether you are single, dating, engaged, or married, relational purity is essential. Pastor Josh Shaldal says, show me your friends and I'll show you your future. Proverbs 27, 17 says, as iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. Who were you surrounding yourself with in leadership is pivotal when it comes to purity, living a holy life, and finishing ministry well. You can't call young adults out to live a pure life if you aren't willing to live a pure life yourself. How can you take someone where you aren't willing to live and go yourself? I'm challenging you as a leader to get out of the bedroom and get into the Bible, to put away the pocket porn and get into the prayer room, to walk through the healing so that you can know the healer, to share your testimony of redemption and not allow the enemy to hold you by the throat anymore, to stop finding comfort in the lies of the enemy. My ultimate prayer is that you are not struggling with anything ungodly or sinful when it comes to purity, but statistics are disturbing. The Ministry of Tech, Technology, Advice, and Solutions website shared these following stats taken from Covenant Eyes. 51% of pastors say internet pornography is a possible temptation. 50% of all Christian men and 20% of all Christian women say they are addicted to pornography. 75% of pastors do not have themselves accountable to anyone for their internet use. 
you can experience the full glory of God. You can live in complete and utter freedom and be in tune with God and the Holy Spirit. The good news is that you don't have to deal with anything alone. I am reminded of the lyrics from one of my favorite spontaneous worship songs with Amanda Cook and Stephanie Gretzinger called The Wave, Bitter and Sweet. They sing, the wave that was meant to crush you will be the wave of grace that will lift you higher. I believe some of you are wishing for a new season, but you can't seem to trust God in the current problem. I want to challenge you to use that thing, quote unquote, that the enemy is isolating you with and turn it into glory and praise offering back to God. He will forgive you, deliver you, and sustain you. If you continue to listen to the spontaneous version of this song, it later goes on into the redemptive side that I hope you are able to rejoice in and allow God to truly heal your heart, mind, body, and soul. They sing, You haven't seen anything yet because you don't know how good I get. Ready or not, here I come. God is asking you as a leader to be ready and be prepared because he's coming whether you are ready or not. I hope you desire to be ready as a leader and in and out of season. Here are 10 things I ask myself, do or reflect on as a leader desiring more of God. Final thoughts on purity as a leader. Number one, make sure you have accountability partners and mentors that you trust and fear. Number two, pray and read your Bible daily. Three, Ask God for wisdom, knowledge, and discernment. Four, seek out Christian healthcare professionals if you need counseling. Five, be aware of your weaknesses. They have the potential to relate to sex, money, or power. Number six, reflect on how you want to be remembered. Number seven, begin with the end in mind. Ask yourself, how do I want to leave people, places, and the ministry? Number eight, Set up physical, emotional, spiritual, and relational boundaries when it comes to working with people, problems, and potential moral failure. Number nine, repent and ask God for forgiveness if there is any sin separating you from him. Number 10, remember you are not building your kingdom or name. You are building God's kingdom. Do not take the glory for yourself or rob God of the glory he deserves. Remember, purity is defined as not mixed or adulterated with any other substance or material. Commit to being a pure leader and always keep your eyes on the prize that is Jesus Christ himself. Brent Silkey, Chapter 3. Brent Silkey founded 30 for Freedom, a movement that exists to end sex trafficking in our lifetime, and began with a God-sized dream to run 30 miles on Brent's 30th birthday and with 30 friends raise $30,000 because every 30 seconds, someone becomes a victim of sex trafficking. This effort has raised since 2016 to do sex trafficking prevention, rescue operations, and holistic survivor care. Brent is also the director of St. Paul Chi Alpha, giving college students the opportunity to find Jesus and follow him for a lifetime. The heartbeat of hope plus justice echoes through the ministry of the Silky family, 
30 for Freedom and St. Paul Chi Alpha. For more, visit 30forfreedom.org. Chapter 3 In Biblical Justice by Brent Silkey. Every 30 seconds, someone becomes a victim of sex trafficking. The average age of a sexual slave is 13 years old. The age of a 7th grade kid. Free International. Exposure. I was a 20-year-old college junior when I first learned about sex trafficking. I walked into a chapel service at North Central University when Dr. David Grant of Project Rescue shared story after story of little girls in India whose lives had been torn apart by the horrific nature of sex trafficking and how Project Rescue was bringing rescue, safety, and restoration to these survivors. Brokenness. My heart broke and my blood boiled hearing how these wealthy men would come and pay to do unthinkable things to these kids. I was wrecked hearing about the plight of millions upon millions of children whose innocence and dignity was being stripped away 10, 20, 30 times every day. I knew I could give an offering that day. I knew I could pray for victims and survivors of sex trafficking. But God was stirring something deep within my heart. He was preparing me to be a long hauler in the fight against sex trafficking. Holy discontent. God put a holy discontent in my heart at the age of 20. I was never the same after that day in chapel. My heart began beating more in sync with God's for biblical justice. For kids like the ones Dr. Grant spoke of to be free in Jesus' mighty name. Action. Fast forward nine years. And I'm sitting at a Perkins bakery with one of our youth ministry graduates who was serving in the Marine Corps. We were catching up on life as he was home on leave over Christmas time. I mentioned that in exactly five months from that day, I was turning 30. I shared how God put a dream in my heart to run 30 miles on my 30th birthday, to invite 30 friends to run with me so we could raise $30,000 to rescue kids out of the nightmare of sex trafficking. Because every 30 seconds, someone becomes a victim generosity. He reached into his pocket and slid something across the table. It was a crisp $100 bill that he had just received as a Christmas present three days prior. I hear briefings in the military about sex trafficking all the time. It's horrible. We have to do something to end it. His immediate knee-jerk generosity caught me off guard. This young adult age Marine put his money where my mouth was. I knew I had to take action on this dream that God had dropped in my heart. God's extra on our ordinary. Fast forward to May 28, 2016, my 30th birthday. I will never forget what God did as 48 of us lined up to run the full 30 miles and 75 others came to run a 5K for freedom. Our goal was to raise $30,000, but God's plan was exceedingly abundantly more than what we could have asked for or imagined. By the end of that day, we saw $81,346 raised to do sex trafficking prevention, rescue operations, and holistic survivor care. A movement was born. This milestone birthday became 30 for freedom. 30 miles, 30th birthday, 30 friends, $30,000 every 30 seconds. 30 for freedom exists to end sex trafficking in our lifetime. The next year, 400 people lined up to run 30 for freedom, with over $160,000 raised. 
At the time of this book's publishing, we have seen thousands of people from all across the United States and many from around the world run 30 for Freedom and raise over $832,000. This is a generation who hears about a need and takes action. A vast majority of our 30 for Freedom participants and volunteers have been youth, young adults, and next-generation freedom fighters. As a 100% volunteer-led movement, we are able to give 100% of every donation directly to our nonprofit partners doing the work of biblical justice as it pertains to the issue of sex trafficking. Engaging young adults in biblical justice. So how do we as leaders, pastors, young adult ministry pioneers, engage our young adults in biblical justice? How do we build on-ramps for them to gain God's heart for the poor, marginalized, the oppressed? This process will look a bit different in each unique ministry context. But here are six big rock ideas that will help move the biblical justice ball down the field in your ministry. Number one, exposure. First and foremost, our young adults need to be exposed to the injustices and needs that exist in our communities, our countries, our world. We showed an awareness video to a group of several hundred college students at a retreat. It was an eye-opening account of what modern-day slavery can look like in real life. Number two, brokenness. When we are exposed to the things that break the heart of God, it moves us, it shakes us, it breaks us. This brokenness is altogether uncomfortable and necessary for us to take action. One young man got up from his seat, went to the very back of the auditorium, sat down, and wept. He was exposed to the issue of sex trafficking and experienced God's broken heart in a whole new way. Number three, holy discontent. Being exposed to a need or injustice can lead us to a state of brokenness, and that brokenness can become a holy discontent. A holy discontent is more than just a feeling of empathy or compassion. It leads us down the path of long-haul action. My wife was so moved by the issue of sex trafficking that she declared her major in psychology to become a counselor who specializes in trauma recovery. Her holy discontent started in college and led her down the career path of helping people in these areas. Number four, action. Exposure to injustice, experiencing brokenness, and discovering holy discontent should move us to action. One social justice advocate coined the phrase, the hero line. The hero line is the life-changing place that few get to. It's where they step across the line from feeling to action. This is where rubber meets the road and where true change begins. A college student from North Dakota was in the room when we showed the sex trafficking awareness video. He came to my giving kiosk to give that afternoon with his phone in his hand. He kept looking at it when he was typing his, in his offering. Turns out he was looking at his online banking app to be sure he had the funds available to give. He typed in $1,000 at the giving kiosk and gave one of the largest amounts in that afternoon's $20,000 plus offering to fight sex trafficking. He crossed the hero line by taking action. Number five, obedience. We aren't called to become super influencers with millions of followers in order to change the world in an area of biblical justice. Rather, we are called to follow Jesus in steps of immediate obedience. There is miraculous potential 
in every step of obedience. When we do our part following God's lead, He does far beyond our wildest dreams. That $100 gift on December 28, 2015 at Perkins Bakery was the first gift of over $832,000. That first gift was the catalyst that moved 30 for Freedom from dream to reality. Number six, endurance. Dr. Gary Haugen of International Justice Mission famously quoted, The victims of injustice don't need our spasms of passion, but our long obedience in the same direction. Creating long-term systemic change doesn't happen overnight. The change young adults want to see actualized in our world takes significant grit and endurance. We can encourage our young adults in their biblical justice endeavors by reminding them of why they got started in this in the first place, showing them the impact they're making, and being in their corner for the long haul as they continue in their long obedience in the same direction. Fifteen years after my wife declared her major in psychology, she was able to go to Nepal and put her years of schooling, professional counseling, specialty trauma trainings into action to teach and minister to 70 girls who had been trafficked or were at high risk of being trafficked. It was one of the proudest moments of my life, seeing my bride work so diligently over the long haul to do the work of biblical justice. Conclusion As you expose your young adults to different biblical justice issues, allow the uncomfortable work of brokenness to grip their hearts. A holy discontent will begin to simmer in the crock part of their hearts and lead them to action. As you lead them, remind them there is miraculous potential in every step of obedience. The more obedient they are to God's call, the more change will occur, both in their lives and in relation to the biblical justice issue that sparked a holy discontent within them. A holy discontent, when combined with endurance, grit, and a long obedience in the same direction, produces something significant. May God lead you and your young adults in this lifestyle of biblical justice. Chapter 4, Nick Nilsson. Nick and his wife Summer have been married for 17 years and have pastored at Lakewood Church, serving pastors Joel and Victoria Osteen for 15 years. Nick is committed to helping and preparing young adults to walk fully in their purpose. His ability to lead with authenticity and passion and his relatable testimony set the tone for people to receive the message of hope in Jesus. He is dad to his daughter Haven and son Denver. For more about Nick, visit Instagram.com slash Nick Nilsson. Let me ask you a question. What does it take for you to lose your mind? I want you to think about it because it happens to all of us. It just depends on what triggers you to lose your mind. So I, I want you to just think about what actually causes you to lose your mind. Maybe it causes you to do something embarrassing, something that you regret. I'm talking about things like rush hour traffic. 
Does that cause you to lose your mind? People honking their horns, cutting you off. Kids are screaming in the back seat. Nowhere for you to go. I mean, just thinking about it may even be causing you to lose your mind right now. Maybe you're a movie buff. Maybe, maybe it's seeing the person turn on their phone in the movie theater, lighting up the whole theater. Here you are trying to enjoy just a really, really good movie. The plot's at its best, and you see the person turn on their phone. Your mind is lost. How about your coworker who overuses the word literally? Like they literally say literally every, every time they speak. Literally, everything is literal. Maybe that causes you to lose your mind. Maybe it's having to call a large cup a venti at Starbucks. Maybe you just don't want to submit to this coffee culture we live in, and you just can't stand using this odd language. Lose your mind. Maybe it's a loud chewer. Or how about when you get your outfit just right, you stop at Whataburger, Chick-fil-A, just depending on how you roll, and you spill Chick-fil-A sauce on your new shirt. I mean, that's happened to me, and it just you just go bonkers. You lose your mind. Some of you are losing your mind as I'm going through some of these things. How about all the options in life? Just the sheer options that are presented to us every day. I was hanging with my family the other night. My wife had this fantastic idea, a family movie night. We all had a crazy day, so she thought our family could all just round up in bed. We could pop some popcorn, and we could just watch and relax as we opened Netflix. That's right. Our plan was to relax, and we opened Netflix. And some of you are already ahead of me. 30 minutes later, after scrolling through 957 options, everyone in our family is yelling and fighting. <laughs> we live in a world today that offers an abundance of options and information and attempts to make life easier. But for many of us, they can often make life more stressful. And we find ourselves feeling more and more consistently overwhelmed than ever before. We not only have the daily occurrences and options that can tip us over the edge, but how about we throw on major unexpected challenges in life? How about a global pandemic? How about feeling the disturbance of a divorce or losing a loved one or losing your job? These on top of the everyday occurrences are huge reasons why this society is weighed down with a flood of anxiety, fear, worry, and depression, making peace, friends, making peace something that this world is searching for often, even more than love. See, you can be so loved in this world, but not have peace. You can be surrounded by people who love you, but still not have the peace that your soul longs for. You can have millions of followers, be loved and liked by thousands every day but missing and in searching for internal peace. In the midst of a world that has its challenges, problems, and struggles, where the flood of uncertainty increases, when you are consistently tempted to lose your mind, where do you go to find your confidence and security? Where do you go for peace? 
You see, you don't have to experience much to realize that it can't be found at the end of something, at the end of a vacation, at the end of a salary, at the end of a relationship, even a bottle or the end of a pill. Jesus said in John 16, he's talking to his disciples. He's letting them know that this world will never be void of reasons to be anxious and overwhelmed. But he points them and he gives them the answer. John 16, 33, he says, these things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In other words, the peace your soul craves cannot be found in something created. This peace is not a feeling. It's not a location. This peace cannot be bought and it cannot be manufactured. The world can't give this peace. And guess what? The world can't take it away. This peace is found only in Jesus. See, it's a calm in the storm. It's a comfort in the chaos. And it goes beyond our understanding. This is what makes this peace so powerful. Jesus would go on to say, peace I leave with you. In other words, this peace that I'm leaving is needed. You see, Jesus would never leave something if it wasn't going to be required to live the life in this world in the way that he has purposed us to. Jesus would go on to say in John 16, 33, I have told you these things that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. In other words, the peace that Jesus offers is what will sustain you through life's difficult seasons. The power of this peace is what sustains and anchors us. This peace is what sets you apart. This is a peace that anchors you through a pandemic, through life's greatest challenges. See, God's will is not that you wouldn't have trouble. It's that you would have his peace in the midst of it. See, peace is not the absence of problems. It's the promise of his presence. There was a group of artists who entered a contest. And the task was to paint a picture of peace. So one after another, they finished and they presented these beautiful paintings of beautiful, gorgeous sunsets, amazing mountain ranges, beautiful beaches. They all looked so relaxing. They all looked so calm. Then this last artist steps forward and unveils his painting. And at first glance, this painting looks like the opposite of peace. It's got lightning and thunder. It's got waves crashing. It's got this insane amount of chaos and turbulence within this painting. But if you look closely, right in the middle of all of the chaos, tucked away is a bird at rest. In the midst of all this chaos and turmoil, this bird finds a place of peace in the rock. See, this friend is what the peace of God looks like. Here's the good news. You can stand in the current of divorce. You can stand in the current of sickness, loss, and struggle. You can stand in the current of a pandemic. 
You can stand in the current of all the options of life on the way to receiving a promise and have peace. It's because your peace doesn't come from things changing, from external circumstances calming. Your peace comes from the inside. See, it's a byproduct of God's spirit living on the inside of you. So today the question isn't do you possess peace? The question that I have for you today is do you tap into it? I remember a specific Monday. I was having a really difficult day. I was stressed. I was running late for an appointment and I couldn't find my car keys. You ever have that issue? You need to be somewhere and you just can't find the keys I began lifting cushions, checking under couches, assuming the kids somehow took them and misplaced them. So I'm yelling at them. I'm asking where they put the keys. Then my wife comes in. Summer comes in. I asked her where my keys were. Because, of course, I accused her of misplacing them. Because when you're stressed, it's everyone else's fault, right? Some looked at me and she asked, well, did you check your pockets? And sure enough, I checked my coat pocket and my keys were there the whole time. I was stressed. I was upset. And I was looking to everyone else and here the whole time I possessed what I was searching for. Friends, when trouble comes in your life and you start to worry and you're tempted to look to the outside sources, and find ways to control what is uncontrollable, you have to remember that as a believer, you possess and have access to a peace that is powerful. You didn't lose peace. You simply made the problem bigger than the promise. I want to encourage you today. When you focus on the promise more than the problem, you will experience more peace. Shift your priority. Shift your focus, shift your attention, change your perspective today. Jesus is close. Peace is close. And it is very powerful. It's time to access it. Peace is but a prayer away. It's closer than you think. It's amazing actually what happens in your heart when you take a situation that you've been stressing over for months and you simply talk to God about it. In other words, you release it to him. Philippians 4, 6, and 7. It says, don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all that he's done. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. And his peace, listen to this, his peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. This is a powerful verse. I want you to imagine. Let's look at this verse closely. Imagine this. Imagine peace officers, okay? Huge, strong peace officers standing by in your life. They're enlisted. They're with you. They follow you everywhere you go. But it's not until you call on Jesus and cast your cares to him do these guards Get activated and begin to protect your heart and your mind. Think about that. Peace is standing by, designed to guard your heart and to guard your mind. So why don't you begin to talk to Jesus today about what's stressing you out? 
Because in exchange, you will experience this powerful peace of God flooding your heart. God's peace is not weak. It's not timid. It is powerful. It can overcome the anxiety and fear in your life. Your circumstances, they may not change right away, but the state of your heart and emotions will. Why? Because the peace of God was activated. You began to talk to God, focusing more on the promise of God than the problems in your life. Finally, God's peace is contagious. It's contagious. Just like panic can be contagious, so can peace. In our culture today, peace, I believe, is one of your greatest weapons of influence. It's not your talent or your gift. It's your peace. That's what makes you a powerful individual in today's society. See, Christians are not distinguished by what we go through. We are distinguished by how we go through things. See, everyone faces hills and valleys. But you are distinguished by how you handle them, how you handle the influence, money, titles, open doors, and more importantly, how you handle the struggle and the storms and the valleys of life. A friend of mine told me how he played basketball at the YMCA for like five years with a guy who was an exceptional basketball player. And one day as they were wrapping up, like usual, the guy actually said that he had to leave at five a little earlier than normal. And the other guys, of course, pressed him and they're asking him why he couldn't stay longer. And he paused and he looks and he told them that he had a cancer treatment that he had to make at six o'clock today. And that he couldn't miss it because it was the end of his two year treatment plan. He was playing every week for two years while getting cancer treatment. And my friend said that he never knew. This guy never complained. He was always smiling and kind. He was always looking to be good to other people, to encourage other people, all the while going through something so difficult. My friend later found out he was a devoted believer. And he told me that it was that man's faith that ultimately led him to church. See, it wasn't seeing a man walk through this amazing mountaintop moment. What led him to faith was actually watching a guy walk through a valley in peace. What is that, friend? That's the power of peace, the influential power that peace can have in this society. I don't know about you, but I want to live my life like that, daily leaning into the power of the peace of God. No matter what I'm facing, no matter what's giving way, I want to still smile. I want to still love people. I want to be kind, ultimately pointing people to my power source, which is Jesus Christ. Let me remind us of what Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your souls. What's powerful about this is he typically has said, come and follow me. But here, under these circumstances, he actually says, come to me. In essence, Jesus is saying, when you're facing uncertainty and anxiety is mounting, the only place that's going to fulfill, anchor, and bring you rest is me. 
So today, wherever you find yourself, whether you're stressed over a relationship, over school, over your job, things in your health, look to Jesus today. Surrender what's weighing you down and experience this powerful peace that not only will fulfill you, guard your heart, but also will be a weapon of influence to those around you. Friends, peace is power. Chapter 5, Dr. Alan Tennyson serves as the Dean of the College of Church Leadership at North Central University. He has his PhD from Fuller Theological Seminary. He has taught theology and church history at the graduate and undergraduate level since 2004 and served in pastoral ministry for over 15 years. Dr. Tennyson has authored articles on Pentecostalism and pneumatology. His wife, Rhonda Tennyson, serves as an Assemblies of God missionary to children at risk in both Los Angeles and the Twin Cities area. For more, visit northcentral.edu. Alan Tennyson, In Theology. For most of my 10 plus years spending young adult and college ministry, I was a graduate student in theology. Rather than finding myself living in two different worlds, my ministry to young adults kept my theological studies grounded, while those same studies enriched my ministry. I relied on theology as I helped young adults navigate college classes under pagan college professors, make decisions about their careers, grow in their personal relationships, and answer questions about cultural boundaries. Any explanation of and reflection on the things of God belongs to theology. To invite people to follow Jesus, describe discipleship, encourage Christian community, warn against sin, etc., is to do theology, to reflect on what the Lordship of Christ means, how to pray for healing or when to accept death, how to respond to an unjust law, etc., is to do theology. Theology is a central tool for developing relevant ministries and resilient Christians. Footnote one, as a word, theology has taken on a weird association with esoteric and or useless knowledge that makes surprising any claim toward relevance. Blame could be laid at the feet of some institutions of higher learning, where theology is taught as something disconnected from the lives of everyday Christians. At the same time, some church leaders are not as well prepared to explain the Christian faith in depth so that a church culture has developed around them that does not ask or expect deep answers from pastoral leadership. Christians who have never recognized the usefulness or universality of theology view it suspiciously as something artificial rather than something natural to the life of the church. This fractured relationship between Christian community and theological education has done lasting damage to both. Main text. It is easy to see the need for relevance in young adult ministry. Churches must speak to the lives of young adults, to the lives young adults are currently living, for them to be able to envision the rest of their life in the church. Resilience is just as important. All believers are called to grow in Christ, regardless of whatever tests or temptations they may face. 
over the course of their life, they can become the most mature believers in their community. When that happens, they will have a kind of church eldership by virtue of their maturity. Young adult ministers ought to be, or young adult ministries, ought to be communities designed to help young adults develop the kind of faith that can take them through the course of their whole adult lives. Theology is relevant because it's both foundational and practical. It explains both the ground on which we stand and how to stand on that ground. Theology leads to resiliency because it provides the foundation and framework for other areas of growth that matter to young adults, such as spiritual, relational, vocational, and moral formation. Theology as the knowledge of God is connected to growth in Christ. As a child, one of my favorite songs was Deep and Wide. That title applies to theology. To go deep theologically is to fully explore the meaning of the gospel. The width or, bre the width or breadth of theology encompasses everything that the gospel impacts. In this chapter, we will explain how theological depth and breadth helps build a more relevant ministry and more resilient young adult believers. Theological depth. I once had the opportunity to teach the Gospel of John in a home Bible study, comprised mostly of young adults from the Middle East who were starting fresh in a new country. Over half of those in attendance had never read the Bible. Every week, 20 to 30 people would gather in the great room of a large house to listen to the Gospel. Their response taught me how the biblical story of Jesus must sound to someone hearing it for the first time. Every week, I would answer questions that seem obvious considering what we were reading, but which I rarely heard in a church setting. These questions included, when did Jesus become God? If Jesus is God, then why does he pray to God? What does it mean to really forgive your enemy? Would Judas have been forgiven if he repented after Jesus died? What happened to the soul of Jesus before the resurrection, etc.? Theology goes deep as it provides answers to the kind of questions that have occurred throughout history when hearing the gospel. Do not think of theological development as something that is primarily academic, but as something organic to Christian living. Major doctrines, including the Incarnation and the Trinity, developed naturally as leaders answered the everyday questions that come from learning the good news of Jesus. Foundational doctrines. The New Testament church inherited a Jewish theology centered around three things, ethical monotheism, there is one God who created a world that works if we all act ethically. Divine election. God has chosen one people through whom God is at work for a world that is broken due to sin. And eschatology. God will establish his kingdom in the world through a Messiah that saves us. Christian theology begins at the point of asking how the story of Jesus interacts with and interprets those theological centers of Judaism. Footnote three. N.T. Wright argues that the three major points of Jewish theology are monotheism, election, and eschatology. One God, one people of God, and one future for God's world. And that Paul's substantial reinterpretation of these points in light of Jesus as Messiah and the Holy Spirit are the beginning of Christian theology and Paul and the Faithfulness of God, Minneapolis Fortress Press, 2013, page 46. Of course, Christian theology further developed outside of Judaism as questions were later raised about the meaning of the gospel in light of pagan worldviews. Main text. The death and resurrection of Jesus gave historical concreteness to how the Messiah saves in Jewish eschatology. Take the teaching of Jesus concerning his identity as the Son of God. Add in the resurrection of Jesus as God's vindication of that identification. 
and top it off with the understanding of Jesus' death as an atonement for the sins of the world, then you will have the recipe for understanding Jesus as God incarnate in the flesh. The death, the belief in the deity of Jesus led to the obvious question of how Jesus can be fully God, yet still be distinct from God as Father, without abandoning our commitment to monotheism. To preserve the deity of Jesus and the Holy Spirit and monotheism, the church developed the doctrine of the Trinity, which deepened their understanding of monotheism. The doctrine of the Trinity then shaped the Christian understanding of the church. In the New Testament, the church is described through Trinitarian imagery, such as the priesthood of God, body of Christ, fellowship of the Spirit. The Christian understanding of church redefined the Jewish conception of divine election to include Gentiles together with Jews as one people of God, the Father, Son, and Spirit. This is how Christian theology is founded on and distinct from Jewish theology. Our understanding of one God as Trinity, including God's work in creation, redemption, and sanctification, the incarnation, atonement, and resurrection of Jesus, which together gives us our doctrine of salvation, and the church as the multicultural people of God called in Christ are the foundational beliefs of theology, without which Christianity will not make sense. If Christianity does not make sense to young adults, Christianity will not be able to make sense of anything else for young adults. These are the teachings young adults must internalize until they become second nature to how young adults view the world and the purpose of their lives in it. Biblical literacy. While different Christian communities have theological traditions that differ in some respects, all Christian churches share the same basic doctrines and the same scriptures. Throughout the history of the church, the Bible has been regarded and relied upon as the revelation of God, describing what God is doing in the world and what we are supposed to do as God's people. The increasing loss of biblical literacy in the church today is a crisis that is difficult to exaggerate. Without knowledge of God's word, it becomes that much harder to understand God's work and thus discern God's will. If Christians do not know the Bible, then the ceiling is lowered for their growth in Christ because of what is missing from their knowledge of God. But note five, Robert Banks, Paul's idea of community, spirit and church and early house churches, pages 70 to 73. Banks makes the point that the most common words used by Paul when describing growth in Christ are some form of the word knowledge. When Paul warns us about knowledge, as in 1 Corinthians 8.1, it is because it has been separated from our formation in Christ, evidenced by a lack of love. Knowledge of God, i.e. theology, should lead to greater love. Corporately, main text, corporately, a church that is biblically illiterate will be less resistant to manipulation and heresy as the whole and their knowledge of the stories and teachings of God will be filled with the stories and teachings of the outside culture. Widespread ignorance of God's word may even put an expiration date on that church within a few generations. But note six, the lack of biblical literacy and a lack of biblical commitment mutually reinforce one another. And a low level of biblical commitment can lead to a low level of church commitment. Children who grow up in a church with a low level of biblical commitment will have less reason to stay in that church as adults because there is less that church can offer that they cannot get elsewhere. 
Thomas Bergler and the Juvenilization of American Christianity, Grand Rapids Urgement 2012, argues that this is largely responsible for the decline in historic denominations. Recent studies show this decline is still occurring. The religioninpublic.blog splash 2020-1123, the data is clear Episcopalians are in trouble. Main text. Leaders of young adult ministries must be intentional in creating a biblically literate community. Pastors should have a commitment to teaching the whole story of the Bible. That means a commitment to the Old Testament, including the ugly and boring parts. The authors of the New Testament assumed a knowledge of the Old Testament in their writings. The New Testament does not make as much sense without it. Leaders cannot allow their discomfort with certain parts of the Bible to control where they focus their attention. Rather, we must allow those parts of the Bible to have the say over our discomfort. If it is in the Bible, then it is useful to the church. 2 Timothy 3.16. There are levels to biblical literacy. The first level is knowing the story of the Bible. Learn to use the terminology of the Bible so that it normalizes the Bible and becomes part of how young adults speak. Footnote seven. This is an important point made by Satran and Kiesling in Spiritual Formation, page 96. They're not arguing that we rely on a certain translation of the Bible, so that we're going for a certain sound, but that we normalize biblical terminology such as justified by faith or in Christ, people of God, as well as biblical imagery and characters which become our metaphors. Our language shapes the way in which we see the world and interact with it. While we need to explain biblical terms, if we are always sanitizing it through replacement with contemporary metaphors, we risk losing the richness of the Bible for the sake of relevance. Over time, it can lead to a more shallow and a less resilient faith. For example, imagine a church where the story of Anakin Skywalker carries more weight than the story of King Saul. Both character arcs begin with promise and end tragically, but only the story of King Saul is tied to the larger work of God in the world. Star Wars has its usefulness as a source for cultural metaphors, but it will not lead us to or help us abide in the gospel in the same way biblical stories will. Main text. The second level is knowing how to read the Bible. It is one thing to recognize the stories and characters, but another thing to be able to read the Bible on your own. The third level is knowing how to apply the Bible. In learning to apply scripture to our lives, we will move from expecting the Bible to answer our questions to understanding the questions the Bible tells us we should be asking of ourselves. We will not lead young adults into all these levels through preaching and teaching alone, but through intentional mentoring and discipleship. The last level is knowing how to live the Bible. When we have learned to read and apply it well, we can see ourselves living out the Bible as if our lives are part of the biblical narrative. Biblical terminology will become the language we use when explaining ourselves. When we reach the place where our knowledge of the Bible has created the personal convictions guiding our lives, then we are a people who are biblically formed and not just biblically informed. That is the result of biblical literacy. Theological breadth. The breadth of theology can be very useful in helping biblically formed young adults navigate the many options they are given in college and in the first years of their career. Because God is everywhere, there is nothing that is not touched by God. Because God is best understood through the gospel, 
everything is impacted by the story of Jesus. Educational challenges. The purpose of college in the United States has changed over the last 150 years. College was once the institution entrusted with the moral development of free citizens who needed the education to handle political decision-making. To develop someone intellectually entailed their moral formation, and that education reflected a Christian worldview. Today, many colleges, including some Christian institutions, have replaced a deep moral formation with a kind of political activism. They may still offer a world-class education, but one that is no longer imbued with the Christian worldview. Some young adults understandably struggle with their faith in college. A college education can force a confrontation with a different way of understanding the world that is packaged with their vocational training. How do they integrate their faith with their learning when their education is given to them faith-free and, in some disciplines, faith-resistant? Thankfully, we live in a time where there are several resources offering a Christian response to almost anything within our culture. As a young adult leader, pay attention to the questions that repeatedly come from young adults. These questions will guide you in building your own library of resources on the issues that present the greatest challenges for a young adult faith. It is important to model intellectual humility in dealing with tough questions. Perhaps the greatest virtue for a theologian is humility, because you are dealing with the subject, capital S, so much greater than yourself. That same humility should be present when dealing with any other subject in light of God. Do not be afraid of being unable to answer questions because it is just as beneficial to show young adults how to find answers and how to live with the tension of not knowing. Take care not to treat questions you cannot answer at the time as if they are unanswerable or unimportant because that looks like arrogance. For example, I do not know much about sociology as a pastor when a young adult studying sociology came to me with questions about integrating his faith with it. He loved studying sociology, but his professor constantly used religion to illustrate sociological principles and, as a result, suggested that there was nothing to religious faith that sociology could not explain away. I cared about his question because I cared about him, and together we explored how to respond to these challenges. As young adult leaders, we will not have all the answers, but young adults need to know the Christian faith is big enough for the whole world, and that Christians do not have to fear any question from the world. Vocational challenges. One of the most relevant questions I received as a young adult pastor is about potential careers. Some of the time, young adults had an idea of what they wanted to do, but not how to fit it in with their Christian life or how their faith fit with it. Some felt the only way to bring together their faith and career was to enter full-time vocational ministry. While I wanted to see young adults fully exercise their spiritual gifts, I did not want them to enter vocational ministry because they thought God only cared about their work if they worked in a church. Vocation comes from the Latin for calling and applies to much more than a paying job. In most instances in the New Testament, the calling of a Christian refers to their life in Christ. Our vocation is first and foremost to be a follower of Jesus. We may also apply the term to any responsibility to which we are called as a follower of Jesus, including our responsibility to a family, to a community, and to a job. There are two false dichotomies concerning vocation that negatively affect how young adults live out their faith. The first 
is that young adults may assume their calling applies only to work and not also to leisure. If they think of their vocation only as a job in which they are paid, their view of calling may be limited to what they do for 40 hours a week. What is more, they can view the rest of the week as time belonging exclusively to themselves. If we think of vocation as including the sum of responsibilities to which God has called us in Christ, there is no time in our week that is not God's time. God commands us to rest one day a week, but that day still belongs to the Lord. The second false dichotomy occurs when we distinguish between work that is sacred and work that is secular, with the assumption that God values the sacred more. A theological conception of work understands it from the standpoint of God's work and how God may accomplish God's work through our work. The ultimate ends of our work include the care for creation, the common good of humanity, and the coming of God's kingdom. Anyone whose work is connected to any one of these ends is doing the kind of job that God works through. As pastors, we have a responsibility to help young adults understand how God can work through their job, career, profession, etc., for what it is, and not only through the evangelism of their coworkers or earned income they can give back to the church. In my experience, I have found that many Christians are not being taught how their work pleases God. We can teach them about the value of their work in a way they may not get from their own professional training. At this point, theology becomes more relevant to their work life than their career education because of how it helps them integrate their faith with their life. For example, a criticism of some law schools is that they teach the law only as a form of social engineering, but theology can show young lawyers how their work connects with the common good. Aspiring scientists might be taught that science is the only way to know anything, and God becomes excluded from our knowledge. But theology can help them see how the study of nature reveals the glory of God who created all things, and that the result of their work connects to the care of creation. Whether we are talking about the law, science, engineering, the service industry, marketing, farming, etc., they are all sacred vocations if their work is something God can work through. The dichotomy in the Bible is not between the sacred and the secular, but between the sacred and the sinful. There are some forms of work that are sinful, not only because God cannot work through them, but because that work actively opposes the work of God in the world. Four things Christians are called to avoid in the New Testament are idolatry, immorality, injustice, and illegality, at least in relationship to the Ten Commandments. As a believer, I cannot serve as a pagan priest or in the purposeful manufacturing of idols. While anything can become an idol, there may be something that exists only to be an idol. A Christian may not do a job that requires sexual immorality. Even if sex work becomes fully legal in this country, Christians cannot work in that industry. Christians may not do a job that is unjust or inhumane. We cannot work as hitmen or serve an oppressive power. Finally. Christians must avoid any job that requires them to break the Ten Commandments, to regularly lie, steal, etc. Most jobs will not fall into any of these sinful categories by design, but any job has the potential to corrupt and become corrupted. Young adults must understand their first responsibility is to Christ. They have the freedom to leave any job or career because their ultimate vocation is in Christ. Cultural challenges. Many of the questions young adults have about their education and vocation 
are part of a larger concern of how they can live faithfully within culture and how to impact culture effectively. For many believers, the options for impacting culture are limited to evangelism, social reform, and or political activism. Recent works have argued for another option, cultural contribution. According to Andy Crouch, the best way to change culture is to make more of it. Most young adults want to make a difference in the world, but some are worried about being too out of step with the surrounding culture. One of the central theological questions of our time is an understanding of what it means to be human and how that relates to morality and politics, particularly the recognition and protection of human rights. This is a question, this question is a foundational one at the heart of our most significant political disagreements, including reproductive rights, illegality and or morality of abortion, the rights, recognition and protections of LGBTQIA plus communities, and all other concerns that may fall under the broad label of social justice, including police interactions with minority groups, debates over economic rights and responses to the threat of climate change. This understanding of being human and all that accompanies it is at the heart of a new cultural litmus test used to determine whether someone is the right kind of, is the kind of right thinking person that should be given greater cultural access. Let me say this again. This understanding of being human and all that accompanies it is at the heart of new cultural litmus tests used to determine whether someone is the kind of right thinking person that should be given greater cultural access. Young adults have grown up in a world where announcing their unpopular cultural opinions and religious beliefs can cause them to feel, quote unquote, canceled. It becomes that much more important that we rely on theology to create the right convictions about human beings so that young adults can navigate the culture and express themselves biblically. The Old Testament teaches that humans are created in the image of God, which means we are created to reflect God's authority to the rest of creation. Reflecting God's authority carries with it a responsibility that covers many of our contemporary concerns about justice. Human beings are called to care for creation and to respect one another as fellow image bearers of God. That call is connected to the command to be fruitful and multiply so that the earth may be filled with God's image bearers who bear responsibility for it and each other. In this way, being a gendered and sexual being capable of reproduction cannot be separated from our call as God's image. The New Testament further develops this understanding of humanity through the person of Jesus. Jesus not only represents the character of God, but also the nature of our humanity. Jesus shows us what an uncorrupted humanity looks like. In his resurrection, Jesus gives us a concrete image of human destiny. As the Lord enthroned in heaven, Jesus fulfills the call of humanity to be God's image over creation, a responsibility that we will share in as part of our destiny in the resurrection. Through discipleship to Jesus, the church teaches us how to bear our responsibility as human beings who are called to reflect God's authority over creation. In other words, being Christian is not another way of teaching people how to be and act religious, but as a way of teaching people how to be human and act humanely. Explaining our foundational doctrines helps us to explain what it means to be human. Explaining what it means to be human helps us to guide young adults as they navigate the pressing issues of the culture. By helping young adults interpret points of cultural conflict within the scope of the Christian faith, 
not just against the backdrop of that culture. We are leading them to build a more resilient faith in the face of intense cultural challenges. When the day comes that they are the most mature believers in the room, their community will have the right leadership to help them live faithfully, no matter where the surrounding culture is headed. Theological thinking. There are several challenges in our cultural climate that call for Christians to exercise greater discernment. Prominent examples include the areas of science, sexuality, and politics. Some Christians believe they must choose between science and Christianity because they buy into a cultural idea that science exists on the same level as scripture. Asking them all about, about their identity, and they may assume you're asking about their sexuality instead of who they are in Christ because of how that term is used in our culture. Politics is viewed by too many Christians as the primary shaper of morality so that every political battle, no matter how small, is a war between good and evil or a battle for the soul of the people. When Christians judge their morality through the lens of political options rather than the teachings of scripture, the church is no longer leading their moral formation. It is our theological commitments rather than our cultural options that should guide us as believers in Christ. Theology can help young adults respond faithfully to culture by encouraging four commitments in their thinking. Number one, think creationally. Remember that if there is something true about what God created, it is true because of God. Whenever we study something created by God, we are learning about the world and its creator. All that something needs to be interesting to Christians is that it be true. We do not need to be afraid of true things as believers because all truth belongs to God. Being a Christian should make us more curious about the world in which we live because the world tells us something about the God who created it. Number two, think communally. When studying anything, attempt to understand it in light of the impact it can have on people, how they can be helped or hurt. Curiosity must be coupled with responsibility. And whatever we learn, consider the consequences of that learning. Seek to understand things in consideration of how that understanding can guide you in helping others. Number three, think critically. Avoid the approach of beginning with how we feel about something than justifying that feeling with reasons. Be comfortable with questioning how we feel and learning to think through something by considering why someone else would think the opposite without assuming that they are evil. Before we challenge others, we must first challenge ourselves with curiosity and responsibility put on humility. Number four, think Christianly. Thinking Christianly means trying to understand a subject or topic through the lens of the gospel or God's work in the world, beyond the limitations of our own culture and feelings. When approaching any subject, consider how you think a Christian should regard it. We must engage in dialogue with other Christians who are also attempting to think through something as disciples of Jesus and allow the Bible to ground our thinking. This means our thinking is curious, responsible, humble, but also biblically rational. This is a rationality that is faithful to the God who created everything that exists, cares for what is created, and is at work restoring that creation through Christ. Inclusion. It is impossible to lead a Christian community without theology because it is not possible to identify a Christian community without theology. 
everyone who talks about God and the things of God is doing theology. The question is not whether theology is useful to the church, but how intentional and biblically faithful we are in our use of theology in leading. Without that intentionality, it is much more difficult to offer a Christianity that is deeply and not just superficially relevant to young adult lives and to faithfully guide young adults in building a resilient faith. Theology is not everything, see all the other important topics in this book, but it offers the foundation and framework for everything else. Christian leaders can improve at doing theology without necessitating a formal education. For much of church history, good theology was passed from mentors to disciples so that each leader ensured that those who followed were equipped to live and lead theologically, morally, spiritually, and organizationally. Today, we do much of that work through institutions of higher learning, but not all Christian leaders have the resources or the time for a formal education. What matters is that all Christian leaders, and certainly leaders of ministries filled with emerging adults, are committed to a deeper understanding and passing on of the Christian faith that has sustained the church for 2,000 years. Build personal libraries. If you're looking for where to start, begin with recommendations from trusted leaders and the footnotes of trusted books. Find theological mentors and seek out other sources of information such as podcasts and blogs that will guide your theological formation because we can only lead people as far as we ourselves have grown. These things may not provide the rigor of a formal education, but they can still help you build a more effective ministry to young adults. Young adults are more likely to remain in the church when they believe both in what the church is doing and in what, and in what the church is teaching about itself and the world outside of itself. That teaching is the depth and breadth of theology. Chapter 6. Reverend Dr. Sam Kim is a Harvard-trained ethicist and co-founder of 180 Church in NYC in downtown Manhattan. He is a Yale Hastings Scholar at the Hastings Center exploring the crisis of professional burnout in academic medicine and among ecumenical clergy. He was appointed as a fellow in global health and social medicine at the Center for Bioethics at Harvard Medical School and part of Harvard Catalyst, where he explored inequities surrounding health, immigration, and social policies. For more, visit samdkim.com. For college students, the start of a new semester is a time of great anticipation and joy. But a recent Harvard Catalyst study reveals that college years are also a time of increased risk of stressful incidents, chronic mental health challenges, including risk of suicide. Published in Depression and Anxiety, a 2018 study led by the researchers at the Developmental Risk and Cultural Resilience Laboratory at the Brigham and Women's Hospital at Harvard Medical School surveyed 68,000 college students from across more than 100 institutions related to depression and suicide ideation. 
four significant patterns emerged. First, high rates of stressful life occurrences. 75% of respondents reported a stress-related event on campus. Stress exposure was highly correlated with mental issues, self-harm, and suicide ideation. Second, ongoing mental health challenges. 25% of respondents reported seeking treatment or diagnosed with some form of mental illness in the prior year. 20% of all respondents struggled with suicide ideation, with close to 10% reporting have attempted suicide, and nearly 20% reporting self-injury. Third, ethnic minorities are most at risk hiding mental health struggles. Although the study revealed increased rates of stress, suicidal thoughts, and attempts of self-harm, Asian and Black students reported a lower rate of mental health diagnosis compared to white students. Also, minority students showed a lower likelihood of reporting all outcomes compared to white students. Another significant discovery was that LGBTQ students were at most risk for mental health disorders or self-injury, with two-thirds reporting self-injury and more than half struggling with suicide ideation. Four, suicide rates among college students are double the national average. The study finds one of five students surveyed reported thoughts of suicide in the last year. The aggregate of these two groundbreaking quantitative studies paints an ominous narrative looming in the heart and soul of young adults in this generation. Ford reveals students are not only battling enormous stress, but also depression and suicide ideation. The data from the Harvard study, which focuses on depression, mingled with the Cigna study, which focuses on loneliness, shows an aggregated impact of stress and mental health struggles to college campuses. Students are not only battling loneliness, as the Cigna study indicates, but also depression and thoughts of suicide. It's, but also depression and thoughts of suicide. When expectations become so crushing. As treatments for depression and anxiety reach epidemic levels and suicide rates skyrocket, the call to the church to be the light in the darkness has never been clearer. The harvest is plentiful for those who truly understand the heart of a generation or few. So what can we do? First, let's confess our struggles to one another rather than trying to hide them. This is not only biblical, but also foundational in creating a culture of grace. Yes, it will hurt our pride, but that is exactly why we should do it. It will bring light into the darkness and with it healing and restoration into our lives and others. Some call this revival or transformation. Others call it something else. Whatever the etymology, it is a God thing, and that is always good. If we want to win the hearts of the next generation, we must recognize that young adults today are burning out, attempting to meet the crushing expectations they and their peers have for themselves. Although there are multiple factors influencing this pervasive narrative in the hearts and soul of young adults, I believe the advent of social media could be the most critical. Jim Collins posits in Good to Great that although technology cannot create growth, it can accelerate it. 
Social media has become an ostentatious microcosm and has brought with it crushing expectations. The American Journal of Epidemiology and the Yale Laboratory of Human Nature posit that Facebook is actually a mental health hazard. There is a direct link between clinical depression and Facebook usage. Why? Because no one actually posts their bloopers, but only their highlights. Every loss and win are compounded with greater anxiety and paranoia, and when you continue to compare other people's fastidiously created highlights to your own bloopers, despair is inevitable. There is a big difference between a band performing for a few friends in a garage versus performing in Madison Square Garden. You would certainly hope you get the chance to practice in the former before attempting the latter. However, for the present generation, the former is unfortunately no longer available. No wonder so many young adults today have an insidious proclivity to deflect from community and into social isolation. It is no surprise that another significant pattern related to the study of loneliness and social isolation by Cigna is that Generation Z is now the loneliest generation in history. Although Gen Z is perhaps the generation that is most technologically connected, they score the highest on the UCLA Loneliness Scale. The UCLA Loneliness Scale, an instrument that measures and assesses subjective feelings of loneliness, as well as social isolation by using a 20-item questionnaire. Tragically, many young adults are burying their head in the sand looking for any reprieve from the crushing expectations they and their peers have for themselves. This is a significant discovery, for it reveals that perhaps there's never been a generation more starved for love than today's. Many young adults believe their lives aren't good enough. It seems ironic for a generation that is supposedly adulting to be struggling with perfectionism. But when your life is under constant watch, this becomes ubiquitous and almost inescapable. The truth is, perfectionism is just chronic insecurity in disguise. God's power made perfect in weakness. The Bible clearly teaches us that God's power is made perfect in our weakness and not in our strength. Paul posits in 2 Corinthians 2.19, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses that Christ's power may rest on me. Ironically, this seems to go against not only our natural inclination, but that of our churches as well. What is usually honored in Christian spirituality is a continuity apart from polarity, an obsessive form of meticulousness that leaves little room for ambiguity. However, not only is this unbiblical, but that is also far from reality. Life is full of opacity and messiness. It is naive to believe you can divorce one from the other. The good news of the gospel is the fact that Jesus came for those who are sick, sinful, and broken not those who are healthy, moral, or whole. The latter creates a culture of isolation, deception, and manipulation, but the former emancipates us from the Christian game of perception and liberates us to live in authentic community, truth, and sincere love. we got to remember that the church is called to be an ER for the sick, 
not a fashion show for the moral elite. Henry Nouwen writes, as long as we continue to live as if we are what we do, what we have, and what other people think about us, we will remain filled with judgments, opinions, evaluations, and condemnations. We will remain addicted to putting people and things in their right place. The Apostle John knew that the only antidote to liberating a generation from fear was unconditional love. Again, if we want to win the hearts of the next generation, we must recognize that young adults today are struggling with chronic insecurity and are in desperate need of God's unconditional love and grace. Fighting a Spiritual Void David Brooks, in a New York Times op-ed, writes about how our society at this present moment is fighting a spiritual void. Brooks proffers that our society has tried to medicalize trauma. We call it PTSD and regard it as an individual illness that can be treated with medication. But it's increasingly clear that trauma is a moral and spiritual issue as much as a psychological or chemical one. Clearly, Brooks is pointing to a dimension of brokenness that physicians or therapists cannot reconcile or resolve. As the current mental health crisis looms globally, our society and its most seasoned experts are at a loss. So many people today aren't feeling very well, but aren't sure to exactly why. Both physicians and economists have tried to quantify the various driving factors related to the current mental health epidemic, but are also lost. Although we have conducted thousands of quantitative and qualitative studies in academic medicine around the schematic themes related to mental health, we are only just beginning to scratch the surface. As a fellow at Yale Divinity School in partnership with Yale Medicine, exploring the intersectionality between sickness, spirituality, and healing, I've often joined a dual internal medicine pediatrics residency program at Yale New Haven Hospital on morning rounds. As we visited each patient's room, the attending would sincerely ask each patient how they were feeling today. Although many of the patients were soon to be discharged, they told the doctor, they weren't feeling well, and if the doctor knew why. Brooks believes that the alarming rates of suicide and depression rates, along with the rise of fragility and distrust in our culture today, directly flows from this spiritual abyss. Brooks writes, when you privatize morality and denude the public square of spiritual content, you've robbed people of community resources they need to process moral pain together. Subsequently, perhaps our culture's current crushing opiate crisis, porn addiction, and the rise of Tinder are all part of this holy haunting gone horribly wrong. The need for the sacred to return to the center has never been clearer. Henry Nowen truly captures the cry of this generation's deepest anguish when he posits, I am the prodigal son every time I search for unconditional love where it cannot be found. Second, if we want to win the hearts of the next generation and meet the chronic mental health challenges young adults will face today, we must reclaim their prophetic identity as the beloved. A Historic Gospel Opportunity One of the most beautiful moments in scripture is when Jesus is baptized by John in the Jordan River. The context is not as sacred or pious as it appears. However, 
before the booming voice the descent of the white dove and the heavens breaking open all we really have are two cousins playing in the pool they're doing cannonballs and arguing about who's going to get dunked in the water first is this what the clowns part for is this what causes such a ruckus in heaven that god the father decides to make a cameo at a pool party the answer is yes absolutely yes now this may go against our intuition because in the world in which we live our doing determines our being in a culture based on shame and superficiality the elephant in the room which is the pressure to be amazing is always staring directly at us the late henry nowen once suggested that self-rejection is the greatest enemy of the spiritual life because it contradicts the sacred voice that calls us the beloved and that is exactly the oceanic environment we see jesus living in clearly jesus was astoundingly successful in his mission because he knew he was the beloved If we truly want to win the hearts of the next generation with the gospel, we must help reclaim their identity as the beloved. Because only perfect love can cast out fear. It has been said that the gospel is one hobo telling another where the bread is. For a culture starving for love, the church now has a historic opportunity to usher in a gospel movement unseen since the Jesus movement. The church does not need more innovative or cool missiological schemes, but a return to simplicity. The church today is saturated with sophisticated marketing strategies from Facebook and Google and other tech giants, and starve for authenticity and hospitality. The church should not be distracted by popular trends, but should focus instead on creating meaningful social interactions. with those of its neighbors, friends and family who need the Lord. Close to half the respondents from the Sigma study said that they did not have a single meaningful in-person social connection, such as daily conversation with friends or quality time with family. This is why the single greatest gift we still can give others outside of eternity is our time. Time is precious because it is the only commodity we cannot ever recoup. Thus, intentionally taking time to drink a cup of coffee or share a hot meal with a friend is still the most effective gospel witness today as it was in the time of Jesus it may not seem like that much at first glance but if we consistently practice a gospel centered hospitality we'll see one day from the other side of heaven that we have touched and changed eternity much to our surprise and delight Chapter 7 Paul Worcester Paul serves as the National Collegiate Evangelism Director for the North American Mission Board. He is the senior editor of Campus Ministry Today, a collegiate ministry resource website and podcast. In 2019, Paul launched Campus Multiplication Network, which provides training and coaching for collegiate ministry leaders around the world. Paul and his wife Christy have two young children. Paul is an author loves to surf and play other sports you can connect with them on social media at 
Paul Worcester or shoot him an email at P-W-O-R-C-E-S-T-E-R at N-A-M-B dot net. Chapter 7, In Evangelistic Momentum by Paul Wooster. How do you measure success in young adult ministry? There are so many things that could be presented as a goal of a young adult ministry. There's obvious metrics like how many people attend our ministry events, but those numbers provide a very shallow view of what God is actually doing in our midst. One of the most important metrics that I would encourage you to track is, how many laborers do we have in our ministry? Jesus sees every young adult in your community. He knows their thoughts, secret sins, every struggle each of them is dealing with. When Jesus looks at the crowd, his heart breaks for them. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Matthew 9, 36-38. The Greek word for compassion in this passage literally means to feel it in your gut. When Jesus saw the crowds, he got a pit in his stomach. Why? They were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. The average young adult that you meet is hurting and broken, wandering through life without the direction or protection of God. If nothing changes, they are headed for a life of bondage to sin and an eternity in hell. It's my prayer that Jesus will give you his heart of compassion for the crowds of lost young adults in your community. I pray that you would feel sick to your stomach when you think about the thousands of young adults in your community that are stuck in sin and headed to a Christless eternity. Bob Pierce, the founder of Christian relief organization World Vision, encourages us to pray, let my heart be broken by the things that break the heart of God. God loves people more than you and I ever know. Why don't you take a moment right now and ask him to break your heart for what breaks his? It's a prayer that he would love to answer. In Matthew 9, Jesus shares his compassion for the hordes of lost sheep, but then switches to a metaphor about harvesting crops. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. The harvest represents people who are ready to follow Christ. God is currently at work in thousands of young adults' lives across your community and around the world, preparing them to respond to the gospel if a laborer will simply step into their lives, love them, and share Christ with them. The problem is not with the harvest. The harvest is plentiful. The problem is a lack of laborers. A laborer is simply an obedient follower of Jesus Christ who continually seeks to share Christ and help disciple others as a lifestyle. Being a laborer is not glamorous, and it's not only for the super gifted. A laborer is an ordinary field hand that is willing to roll up his or her sleeves and get to work bringing in the harvest. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. What a tragedy. Think about it. There are people who are ready right now to respond to Christ, but there are not enough laborers to go share with them. I don't know what could possibly be more urgent dilemma. The good news is God didn't leave us to figure this one out on our own. He gave us a plan. The first response to this overwhelming problem is to pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest. God is the Lord of the harvest. When I'm tempted to despair, or get discouraged about the state of my community or the state of the world, it's helpful for me to remember it's not my harvest. It's God's world, and he has a plan to send out laborers. He is drawing people to himself, 
and he is calling laborers to go share the gospel with those people. When we pray earnestly for God to raise up laborers, we are reminded that it's God's work, and he answers our our prayers to send out more laborers. And in case you haven't put it together yet, you can be an answer to Jesus' prayer requests. That's why in Matthew 9, 36-38, it's one of the sneakiest verses in the Bible. I've never met someone who faithfully prayed for laborers who the Lord didn't burden to become a laborer themselves. God is inviting you and the young adults in your ministry to become laborers, joining him on his mission to labor in the harvest and make disciples of all nations. I have watched hundreds of ordinary young adults go from lost to labor in less than a year. Each year, our ministry's primary focus is to raise up more laborers. Last year, we had 64 laborers on what we call our core team. We meet weekly with them for training, prayer, and accountability about evangelism that they are doing in their relational networks. By the end of the year, these laborers saw 207 young adults in our community indicate a decision to follow Jesus. Most of these decisions happened in the context of a low-pressure, relational conversation we call gospel appointments. By the grace of God, we are seeing a movement of God that I couldn't stop if I tried. The gospel is going viral as young adults are reaching friends who are reaching others. There has always been a direct connection to how many equipped laborers that we have and how many people we have coming to Christ. Here are eight practical ways to unleash young adults to share Christ. Number one, model the urgency. This is the most important step. Young adults may not do what you teach them to do, but they will do what you do. You must be able to say, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. 1 Corinthians 11.1 If the leaders in your ministry are not consistently sharing the gospel with lost people, then the first place to look is in the mirror. If you're not regularly sharing the gospel with non-believers, then you will not be effective in equipping others. Are you consistently building relationships with non-Christians and having gospel conversations? If not, ask God to break your heart for those without Christ and make sure to get the best training available. Make it your top priority to start building relationships with lost people and sowing the gospel among them. The most effective type of evangelism training is what I call monkey see, monkey do training. Take them with you, show them how, and then debrief. I have a goal that if I have an appointment to share the gospel, I try to apply the never share alone principle. I will always invite a young adult who is just learning how to share their faith to join me and play wingman to watch how I share Christ with the other person. I ask them to help with the small talk, and I sometimes ask them to even share their testimony. I use this as an opportunity to show them how to make key transitions in a gospel conversation. It has been amazing to see how stoked the student is when we debrief with them afterwards. For many, it's the fear of the unknown that stops them from breaking the ice on their first gospel conversations. We can help them overcome those fears by going with them to share the gospel. Most believers genuinely want to be faithful in sharing Christ with those around them. They just need a living example. Robert Coleman in Master Plan of Evangelism put it this way, Having called his men, Jesus made a practice of being with them. This was the essence of his training program, just letting his disciples follow him. It's good to tell people what we mean, but it is infinitely better to show them. People are looking for a demonstration, not an explanation. One living sermon is worth a hundred explanations. Number two, celebrate the stories. 
If any of your young adults take the smallest step towards sharing the gospel, do backflips out the window. Once you start having people share the gospel, you must work hard to share the stories. Leadership 101 is that you get what you celebrate. If you create a culture where people have an opportunity to humbly tell their evangelistic stories, you're going to be surprised by how many stories will keep rolling in week after week. We take time during our core team meeting with our leaders each week to share God's stories. Eventually, it got to the place where it would take hours for us to share all the stories each week. We now celebrate the stories by using a secret Facebook group for our core team and highlight one each meeting. There's nothing better as a leader than your phone blowing up with students sharing stories and prayer requests about people they are sharing Jesus with. Number three, give them simple tools. Sometimes evangelistic tools, such as simple illustrations, get a bad rap as canned. This may be true if your training never progresses beyond using just one tool, but we've found that giving people something to start with helps tremendously. I agree with Steve Shogren, who said, the best kind of evangelism is the kind that you do. I would encourage you to prayerfully choose a couple tools to train everyone in and use those repeatedly year after year. Evangelistic tools can serve like training wheels do for a kid learning to ride a bike. Having simple tools also makes it easy for students to turn around and train others. I once had a new believer that I just taught how to explain the gospel, use a tool called the bridge illustration, turn around and share the illustration with his girlfriend verbally while they were in the hot tub, and she decided to pray to receive Christ right there. Reproducible tools can be extremely helpful for someone gaining confidence in sharing their faith. Once people get started, they can develop their own style and learn to adapt tools to fit different situations and personalities. One tool our ministry uses is the Three Habits for Everyday Evangelism, which is a simple way to make evangelism a spiritual discipline in your life. The Three Habits for Everyday Evangelism are, number one, pray daily for open doors to share Jesus and boldly take advantage of them. Number two, developed an impact list of five to 10 people. Use the prayer, care, share strategy. Number three, plan regularly to spend time with your non-Christian friends. All leaders in our ministry keep one another accountable to practice these three habits with weekly accountability questions. This helps keep evangelism front and center in our conversations during our discipleship times. Another tool I already mentioned is gospel appointments. If I had to pick one gospel sharing tool to use for the rest of my life, I would choose gospel appointments. Gospel appointments are low pressure and relational and are a great way to get to know someone and share the gospel. It follows a simple three-story outline. Their story, your story, and God's story. We set up gospel appointments with everyone who comes to any ministry events. They're a perfect way to welcome a new person and see where they're at spiritually. We have a motto in our ministry, if they are breathing, they need Jesus. And when in doubt, share the gospel. For reproducible resources on how to do gospel appointments, visit gospelappointments.com. Number four, so broadly with them. Every movement in the history of Christianity has been marked by broad sowing of the gospel. Jesus took the 12 with him, Mark 3, 14, and the training he gave them was to sow the gospel broadly in every town and village. The leaders of the early church were also seed-sowing fools. You don't see them waiting around and worrying about if it was the right time to share the gospel with people. 
Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stop teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ, Acts 5.42. Mission strategists are discovering that there is a direct connection to how many people you share the gospel with and how many people you lead to Christ. I came across this challenging story from a missionary in a closed country in the book T for T by Steve Smith. We must use spiritual means to find spiritual people. One successful trainer says it this way, we must sift for persons of peace using the gospel. In a training session, it became apparent that a longtime colleague and his team were seeing dramatic results in a very resistant people group. For seven years, they had labored with no fruit, no new believers, and no new churches. How discouraging. At our meeting, he reported that in the eighth year, they began to see radically different results. So I asked him, what changed? In embarrassment, he replied, we started sharing the gospel. I said, excuse me, what did you say? Looking me in the eye with sadness, he said more loudly, we started sharing the gospel. Another colleague who was seeing a lot of people come to Christ was asked, whom do you find to be the most responsive? He replied, those I share the gospel with. 100% of those that I do not share with do not respond. Here's a great question to ask yourself each month. How many young adults in my community heard the gospel? Number five, practice personal evangelism and team approaches to evangelism. God uses all kinds of methods to reach all kinds of people. When Jesus called his apostles, he said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Matthew 4:19. At that time, the most common type of fishing was actually net fishing which took a team of people to pull in the nets. In addition to training students in personal evangelism, our ministry uses a team approach to pull off larger scale outreach events, social events, evangelistic Bible studies, information tables on college campuses, and even social media strategies to connect with as many lost young adults as possible. Working together on these efforts only elevates the urgency that young adults have for reaching their peers, and it provides opportunities for them to connect with new people who come to these events. Once new people come to a social or outreach event, our student leaders, our young adult leaders, set up a gospel appointment with them to personally share the gospel, or if they are already a believer, to start discipling them personally. The crazy part is that we have seen so many people come to faith using the methods that experts say don't work anymore. College ministry expert Steve Shadrach once said, I have never met a student who was unwilling to share the gospel during the planned times and then took the initiative to share the gospel during the unplanned times. Number six, start training new believers to share Christ as soon as possible. Our ministry provides training in evangelism and disciple making as soon as possible with everyone who accepts Christ. Sharing Jesus is one of the best ways for a new believer to grow in Christ. Philemon 1.6 says, I pray that you may be active in sharing your faith so you may have a full understanding of every good thing we have in Christ. We have discovered that new believers are the best evangelists because they have the most non-Christian friends. Also, new believers don't know any better than to share the gospel. Some new believers will be persons of peace for you and will open up whole networks of new people. A great question to ask a new believer is, which one of your friends do you think needs to hear about this first? One of our staff, Cody, shared the gospel with a college student named Noah. Noah put his trust in Christ on the spot and was so excited about his new life. Cody asked Noah if he had any friends who needed to hear this good news, and the next day, they set up a gospel appointment with Noah's friend, Manny. 
The second day that Noah was a believer, he was able to help lead his friend Manny to Jesus. Cody asked Noah and Manny if they knew anyone else that needed to hear about this. They invited Ryan to a ministry event, and Ryan ended up coming to know Christ later that week. Now Ryan is helping launch a ministry, reaching out to fraternities and sororities on a nearby college campus. Number seven, move with the movers. Don't bang your head against the wall trying to motivate everyone in your ministry to be bold evangelists. Focus your training on those who actually want to do it. Spend the most time helping equip people who are the most motivated. We have a number of young adults in our ministry who have led three or four people to Christ in one year. We spend the most personal time with these students, training, encouraging, and helping them follow up on those they lead to Christ. Never apologize for holding a high standard when training young adults as laborers. We should apologize for not calling them forward enough. There are young adults in your ministry that are just waiting for someone to empower them to reach their peers. Pitch the vision fast and watch who steps up. Pour into those leaders. As God begins to move, others will want to join and get in on the action. I would rather have a small leadership team of laborers than a large team of quote-unquote leaders who are not willing to share the gospel. Once you start seeing people crossing from death to life right before your eyes, then the results will speak for themselves. Before you know it, you will look around and see a room full of zealous evangelists. Number eight, train young adults to train others. Start equipping your most motivated evangelists to train others. Even if it would be easier or even more effective for you to do all the training, give people the opportunity to take over the training task. This will speed up the multiplication process. In 2 Timothy 2.2, Paul challenges Timothy to create a downline of disciples who make disciples. And what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses Entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. This training works best in one-on-one settings or small groups. Our ministry builds evangelism training into our basic discipleship curriculum. In our discipleship relationships, we have a series called Be a Disciple that goes over the basics of following Christ. After that series, we have an evangelism training course we go over in our discipleship relationships called Make Disciples. We don't even have to have evangelism training anymore because young adults are training other young adults in evangelism. This training consists not only of lessons, but also of doing evangelism with the other person. If you can systematize and decentralize your evangelism training, you are one step away from seeing a movement of God. Spiritual multiplication starts small and takes time, but investing deeply in a few key leaders will eventually produce exponential results. Robert Coleman once again provides a great encouragement for focusing on spiritual multiplication. Making disciples will be slow, tedious, painful, and probably unnoticed by people at first, but the end result will be glorious even if we don't live to see it. We must decide where we want our ministry to count, in the momentary applause of popular recognition or in the reproduction of our lives in a few chosen people who will carry on the work when we have gone. Tools for Evangelism and Disciple-Making The Fuel and the Flame, Igniting Your Life and Your Campus for Jesus Christ by Paul Wooster and Steve Shadrach. This is a book designed to inspire, equip, and mobilize college students to become laborers. Number two, gospelappointments.com, reproducible lessons and videos for training young adults to share their faith. 
Number three, Campus Multiplication Network. Coaching network for those leading collegiate ministries. CampusMultiplicationNetwork.com Number four, God Tools. App designed by Crew. It has an easy-to-use gospel presentation in multiple languages. Number three, Three Circles. Gospel presentation created by NAM. Number six, Campus Ministry Today. Podcasts and hundreds of resources for collegiate ministry leaders on evangelism, disciple-making, and mission mobilization. CampusMinistry.org Chapter 8, Andrew Matrone is the lead young adult pastor and serves on the leadership team of Red Rocks Church in Denver, Colorado. He is passionate about serving, leading, and developing the young generation of his church. Nothing excites him more than seeing a young life transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Andrew is married to his beautiful wife, Jerrica, and they have two children, Abram and Selah. For more, visit redrocksya.com. In purpose, how can churches lead young adults toward their purpose? I love young adult ministry. I think it's one of the most underrated but important ministries in our churches and universities across the globe. Although many churches forego any type of college or young adult ministry, I believe it serves a major purpose in kingdom expansion. Many young adults have a lot of time, energy, and passion that when channeled, their ability to influence their schools, workplace, and society is unquantifiable. However, why we do young adult ministry must heavily outweigh how we do young adult ministry. The reason being is the why will always dictate the how. Let me explain. I was a youth pastor for almost a decade, and the sole goal of our ministry was to create moments for students. Whether it be by a video, message, retreat, camp, altar call, or life group, we wanted to create as many powerful God moments as possible. Why? Because we had a deep belief that the more God moments a teenager experienced, the more likely they were to turn back to God if they ever fell away later in life. We called them God-file moments, and it framed everything about what we did and how we did it. Working with college and young adults, our approach is different. And it's different because 20-somethings don't just need moments or experiences. They need real, tangible substance to build on that will ultimately take them to the places they want to go. Now, don't get me wrong. We want to create moments of true encounters with the Holy Spirit every opportunity we get. But our main goal for our young adults is, has a different purpose, to build a solid foundation. Why? Well, we believe that the foundation they build today will determine the strength of their structure tomorrow. In other words, who they become now will dictate who they are in the, in the future as a wife, husband, mother, father, boss, employee, all of which are extremely important. Therefore, everything we do as a ministry, be it services, sermons, life groups, conferences, outreach, etc., is all centered around helping, challenging, and encouraging young adults to build a solid foundation in their faith, because a strong foundation will not only help them weather the storms of life, but more importantly, bring purpose to their life. Jesus was about the foundation. The topic of foundation building is biblical. It's a Jesus principle. Jesus ended his entire Sermon on the Mount by talking about foundation. In Matthew 7:24, Jesus said, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall, because it had its foundation on the rock. 
Jesus then went on to compare a man who built his house on a different foundation. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. This is so powerful. In God's eyes, your structure, who you become, matters. Yes. However, God knows that with a poor foundation, your structure will not last. The reality is, your foundation determines the strength of your structure, and your structure determines the strength of your life, and the strength of your life determines your impact for the kingdom of God. Isn't this exactly what we want for our young adults? I believe there's no better time in your life than your 20s to define what your foundation will be built on. However, those of us who work with this age demographic know this is easier said than done. The cultural divide. Ministering to young adults can feel like an uphill battle sometimes, am I right? The reason being is we live in a culture that treats the decade of your 20s as disposable years. I once read an article from a popular magazine that dubbed the 20s as the Odyssey years, or better put, years of wandering. We're almost led to believe that the decade of your 20s doesn't matter, that your 20s are this whimsical time of life that doesn't count. Party it up, do whatever, whenever, with whoever, because everything will just come together once you turn 30. That's laughable. Many of our young adults have been led to believe that real life starts when you get the perfect job or you move to the perfect location or when you settle down with that special someone. And until that happens, go ahead and live your life however you please because it will all just magically work out. We all know this isn't true. We know that your 20s are some of the most critical and transformative years of your life. Some of the most significant events that may happen between birth and death often happen in your 20s. College, move from home, first real job, marriage, kids. Many of these events that happen in our 20s heavily determine our years beyond our 20s. Meg Jay, author of the book The Defining Decades, said, After our 20s, we either continue with or correct for the moves we made during our 20s. In other words, what you do now determines how your life will look later. You can't compartmentalize or separate the two. As people who work with young adults, we should feel an overwhelming deep conviction that the decade of your 20s is critical, defining, and powerful. We must fight to bring understanding to those we minister to, that your 20s is not a decade meant for wandering, but a decade meant for building the foundation in which you will stand on for the rest of your life. Foundation rooted in purpose. The question you may be asking is, how do we help young adults build a solid foundation? The answer to that question, though difficult in practicality, is simple in theory. Help them discover their purpose. Understanding your purpose is nothing more than understanding why you exist. If you can help a young adult understand why they exist, that will dictate how they exist. I believe that if your ministry can help bring discovery to their purpose, or at least create a space where a young adult can wrestle with discovering their purpose, you will have an environment that people want to attach to. That's huge. Young adults are searching for purpose, even if they don't admit it. How do I know? Listen to the questions they are constantly asking. What am I supposed to do with my life? How do I know who I'm supposed to do life with? What does God want for my life? How do I get clarity on my next step? All of these questions re revolve around the idea of purpose. I believe that those of us who work with 20-somethings, or any level of ministry for that matter, have to be so intentional and laser-focused on what we are offering our people and what we're calling them to. You have to take your people on a journey, and I believe people would trust you to take them on that journey if you can help them find purpose in the areas of life that they care most about. Over the years, our ministry has identified these areas based on the most frequent questions, 
conversations and struggles we hear from our people. And what's interesting is all of these are foundational aspects of life. These are the areas in which we help our young adults find purpose. Number one, purpose in dating. You know what's the number one thing that is on the mind of a single young adult? The opposite sex. If you disagree, I don't think you've talked to one in a while. There's a reason that when we do a relationship series or we do relationship talks on our podcast, that there is a 30% increase in attendance and viewership. It's on their mind a lot. You know what this tells me though? They care about what the church has to say about relationships. And ultimately, they're trying to figure out how to engage in relationships in a healthy and godly way. That's good news. We live in such a tender, slide into your DM culture that we have to take hard stances on God's desire for them when it comes to their dating relationships. What we have found is the more brutally honest we are about sex and dating, the better re- response we receive. Young adults want healthy relationships. They want a healthy marriage one day. They just have no idea how to get it. And believe it or not, they care what you have to say about it. If you're a young adult ministry and you're not engaging in this conversation, you're missing something not only critical, but powerful. It's imperative that we create space for honest and vulnerable conversations around this topic. I believe we have a great opportunity and responsibility to travel this road with them. Helping a young adult find purpose in their dating life will not only bring healing to past relationships, but help build a strong relational foundation that will create healthy boundaries that will not only protect themselves, but their future marriage. Number two, purpose and community. In a culture that breeds isolation, if you can be a ministry that creates communities surrounded by vulnerability, authenticity, and fun, your people will find value in engaging with the product you have to offer. If there's something we push more than anything else, it's community. I'm a firm believer that the relational component of your ministry, if it's not strong, a young adult will find somewhere else to attend or not attend at all. You can have the best worship and sermons in the world, but if you do not create a space for community, you'll have a giant revolving back door. Here's a few ideas of how our ministry fosters community. We invest time and energy into our life group coaches and leaders. We pastor them, train them, and develop them. They're the lifeblood of our ministry. We have home groups and freestyle groups that give people options. We create an environment that encourages attendees to come to service early and stay late. We have happy hour hangs where we rent out portions of restaurants and a part of the city where our young adults work. We have a sports ministry that runs year round. Young adults can hang out and play sports. What's better than that? If there's one thing you invest in and work hard to do well, I would say it has to be this. When healthy community is thriving, it takes loads of pressure off the ministry to constantly perform. Young adults will forgive a bad sermon if they have good community. Number three, purpose and work. To me, this is one of the most important aspects of a young adult's life that we can help them find purpose in. The majority of young adults, or at least the ones I talk to, don't really enjoy their places of employment. They're mostly trying to get by and wait for something better to come along. I often hear the statement, I just want to do something I'm passionate about. Many people in their 20s struggle with finding purpose in their work. However, I believe that their place of work is their greatest place of influence. We have to help young adults understand that where you are is where you're called, and where you're called is where you'll make the greatest impact. God has strategically placed them exactly where he wants them. When it comes to helping a young adult find purpose in their work, this is what we preach. Number one, remember why you work. 1 Corinthians 10.13 
So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Number two, remember who you're working for. Colossians 3.23 says, Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Number three, remember the reward of your work. Luke 16.10 says, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. It's important to help a young adult understand that just because they are not passionate about their work doesn't mean they cannot have purpose in their work. Jobs will change. Passions will change, but your purpose of why you work should not. It does not matter what you do. It matters who you do it for. Number four, purpose and faith. Obviously, this is, the, this is the number one, but I wanted to finish with this because if this is not at the foundation, nothing else we do matters. Yes, talk about dating. Talk about community. Talk about work. All are extremely important to young adult ministry. But if we are not pushing our people to deeper and more meaningful relationships with Christ, then what are we doing? We must create environments that are spiritual. We must create environments where people can be strengthened, challenged, and encouraged by the Word of God. We must create an atmosphere where our people can have powerful moments with the Holy Spirit. We must create a place of worship and prayer. Don't lose sight of this. If we want to help our young adults find purpose in their faith, we must model with our words and our actions what the purpose of our existence really is, which is quite simple. Find Jesus, follow Jesus, share Jesus. Find Jesus. We must be gospel-oriented. Our mission for our ministry is to make heaven more crowded by being a front porch for prodigals. We preach this constantly. We want people to know that we are obsessed over the one and will do everything in our power to seek the lost, and introduce them to Jesus. We want to create an environment where a lost young adult can find Jesus, but also feel extremely welcomed and loved in the process. Follow Jesus. We must be vision-oriented. Teaching young adults what it means to follow Jesus is critical. We can't be afraid to speak challenging messages that call our people to a life worthy of the calling that they have received. In our ministry, we have a deep conviction to teach our people how to pray and how to engage with the scriptures. We offer classes that dive deeper into topics of theology. We create environments where young adults can sit and read scripture together. If your vision is to help young adults become more like Jesus, you must preach it with conviction, but also create opportunities for transformation to take place. Share Jesus. We must be mission-oriented. Simply put, We need to raise up young adults who understand that they are put on this earth to know God and make God known. It's imperative they understand that God put them at the school they attend, in the job they have, and in the family they're in to make his name known. I want our young adults to be participators in the Great Commission and share Jesus outside the four walls of our church. We will know young adults are truly living in their purpose when they find Jesus, follow Jesus, and begin to share Jesus. Built to last. Our entire goal for Young adult ministry is to strengthen the foundation of their faith. Life will hit them if it hasn't already, but it will be far less tragic if their house is built on a rock. We want them to be built to last. God has a plan and purpose for their lives. Our job is to come alongside and pull out of them what God has already birthed in them. They need you. It's not easy work, but what a blessing and honor it is to serve them.
Chapter 9, Brad Ormonde Jr. is the lead pastor of Garden City Church in Beaumont, California. Prior to church planting, he served at Harvest Christian Fellowship as young adult pastor under Pastor Greg Laurie. Both Brad and his daughter were diagnosed with type 1 diabetes 15 years apart from each other. Now the Lord is using this story to share with others so they may be comforted with presence and peace of God. For more, visit GardenCityBeaumont.com. How can churches engage young adults through serving opportunities across the world and across the street? If 2020 has taught us anything, it has shown us that there is something important about feeling a sense of belonging. When grocery stores were out of stock, it was the church who stepped up to create food boxes for those in need. When those who were high risk couldn't go out in public, it was the church who delivered items to their house. When family didn't know how to use technology, it was the church that connected the family members together. This was not just about putting on an image so that the world would congratulate the church as the most hospitable or even the most generous. It was about belonging to something greater than this world could offer. John the Baptist said the words, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. What did he mean by this? Jesus spoke about his kingdom and how it is not of this world. What did he mean by this? If someone asked you, what is the kingdom of God? How would you respond? When you think of a kingdom, you may think it is a territory, a land that is owned by the king or that a king conquered to take over. Maybe you think of treasure when you think of a kingdom. A king has many treasures from who he conquered it from or who gave it to him as a gift. Or perhaps you think of the title king, a ruler who has authority over people within the kingdom, therefore making it his obligation to rule over people with power and authority that no one else has. Anyone who tries to usurp the king's power will lose their life. When we think of these aspects of a kingdom, none of these things are truly far off, yet at the same time, the kingdom of God is much different than an earthly kingdom. Although the kingdom of God includes territory, treasure, and title, the kingdom of God is much more unique the closer you look into it. When Jesus spoke about the kingdom, his disciples thought he was talking about a kingdom on earth, but that wasn't really what he was getting at. They believed that Jesus was going to be the promised Messiah they were expecting, and he was, until he wasn't. You see, people thought Jesus was going to usher in a new form of government that liberated people from hostility and evil. They thought Jesus had a political agenda and a military agenda. He didn't have either of those. Jesus was more concerned about something that had an eternal effect on their day-to-day -day life. At the end of Jesus' life, just as he was about to ascend to heaven, his disciples had the opportunity to ask him one last question. If you had the chance to ask Jesus only one question, what would it be? Why is there evil and suffering in the world? Why did you allow them to kill you? Why didn't you stop them? Of all questions his disciples could have asked, they asked, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom? I can imagine that Jesus might have been perplexed and maybe even frustrated by this question. I could have imagined him saying to them, have you learned nothing? But that's not what he said. He gave a patient and gentle answer. Just as we are reminded to do in Proverbs, he replied, the father alone has the authority to set those dates and times, and they are not for you to know. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. 
What did he mean by that? What was he getting at? When Jesus told Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world, was he describing somewhere else outside of this universe? Was there a kingdom on another planet? How would we get there? Is there actually life on Mars? Was Jesus describing that his kingdom was something spiritual or was he speaking of something literal? The whole Old Testament called attention not to a kingdom that would simply appear in people's hearts, but to a kingdom that would break through into this world, a kingdom that would be ruled by God's anointed Messiah. When he came, Jesus inaugurated God's kingdom. He didn't complete it, but he started it. And when he ascended into heaven, he went there for his crowning ceremony, for his installation as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So Jesus's kingship is not something that remains in the future, nor does it mean that Jesus's kingdom is of the future. The reality of the kingdom of God is now and not yet. Christ is king right this minute. He is in the seat of the highest cosmic authority. As he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to God's anointed son. And in his authority, he has given us the authority to add to the kingdom of God too. When Jesus spoke the great commission to his disciples, he was also speaking to them of how to fulfill the great commandment as well. If we want to preach the gospel, if we want to make disciples, who are people who follow Jesus, the only way we can truly do that is through the great commandment. What is that? Jesus was asked by a lawyer who tried to stump him on a trivia question and asked, teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? This is a loaded question because anyone who knew the law knew the answer to this question. Jesus replied, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? The man answered, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your, all your strength, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Right, Jesus told him, do this and you will live. The man, the man wanted to justify his actions, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? This question is so important because we always want to justify our way out of serving people. Who exactly is my neighbor? My literal next door neighbor? People I see at the grocery store? The homeless man who keeps begging me for money? Who? The answer is yes. D. All the above. Here we are, along with the lawyer, trying to figure out whom we're supposed to love, and Jesus flips the script as he is so good at doing. Jesus essentially says, stop asking who is my neighbor. There are deeper questions to figure out. John Piper explains, when we are done trying to establish, is this my neighbor? The issue of love remains, what kind of person am I? Who are you? That's the question. Are we going to be like this Samaritan who gives help when help is needed? Or are we going to be caught up in questions about who we're supposed to help and when am I supposed to help and where am I supposed to help and how am I supposed to help and what if it will make me late for work or will this homeless man use this money to feed on his addiction? What grounds the way we think about our neighbors is actually in our identity, not in theirs. What matters first is who we are. We love others best when we love God the most. This idea comes from fulfilling the Great Commission, preaching the gospel, by obeying the Great Commandment, loving God and loving people. Our identity struggle comes in what we try to find security and satisfaction in. If your security and satisfaction are in pornography, you will find yourself gravitating to them more often than you want to. If your security and satisfaction are in relationships, you will find yourself gravitating to that person over and over even when they hurt you. If your security and satisfaction is in acceptance, you will gravitate to the approval of others. 
And that is where our problem lies. We are searching for security and satisfaction in everything else that God has made rather than in God himself. If we live for the approval of other things, we will die by their rejection of us. By that I mean if you are searching for identity in that thing or in that person apart from God, you will keep going back to it for approval, but you will die from it because it will constantly reject you. It has no life to give to you. That thing or that person is barely alive by their own life alone. And yet Jesus stands in the middle and he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. If Jesus is truly who he says he is, we must do what we can to follow after him with everything in us. What does that look like? In order to move forward, we must look backwards. With the pressures of being culturally relevant and becoming an influencer and using our platform, we miss the mark if we do not give God full access to our life. We give God full access when we turn to him before we turn to anyone else. Culture tells us to look within when in reality we need to look from without. Be true to who you are. Look within to find yourself. Follow your heart. We have all heard these words before, whether in a sermon or in a motivational speech. This advice is where we hit the Control-Alt-Delete button. If I follow my heart, if I am true to who I am, I will end up in a self-made ditch on the side of the road, broken down with no help. Hebrews 12, 1-2 reminds us, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up, and let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. Now he is seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. The champion. Jesus is our champion. He is the dread warrior who initiates our victory march in the presence of our enemies. He is the one who walks with us through the valley of the shadow of death. And we don't have to fear evil. We don't have to fear failure. We don't have to fear the approval or rejection of others. Because if God is for us, who can be against us? Much of this self-help movement tells us to initiate the power from within. But if self-help worked, we would no longer need self-help books or self-help speeches. And yet, self-help books and speeches were the most searched items on Google in 2020. People want to find a way of escape from their intuition that something in life just might be off. Maybe a new job will help me feel better. Maybe more Amazon packages will fulfill me. Maybe that new relationship will bring me joy. The only escape that will lead to freedom is the idea of putting the interests of others as more significant than our own. Excuse me? I'm sorry. I need to clear my ears. I thought you said something like, in order to feel better about myself, I need to think more about others. When we comprehend that idea, it's not some new revelation we are given. It is a profound movement called Christianity. Because when true followers of Jesus look at the interests of others as greater than their own, this is what we call putting on the mind of Christ. And this plays well into what the Apostle Paul told his followers, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Where are you headed? Who are you leading? Where are you leading out from? What motivates you to keep going? The more the gospel has been worked in our heart, our heart will be to work for the gospel. We have many great opportunities in front of us to love God and love people. A missional mindset is searching for those places where God could use me to expand his kingdom, not my own. When we preach the gospel, 
when we make disciples, when we teach them all that God has given to us, we will find out the treasures hidden in jars of clay. We are the clay, the hidden treasure is the gospel, and it's through our life others can see the level of contagious generosity we exhibit. It will cause others to want to do that same thing. Rather than figuring out the latest trends or listening to the top charts, if you remain faithful to your calling, God will take care of the rest. Jesus even reminds us in Matthew 6.33 to seek first the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously and he will give you everything you need. In order to come to the end of ourselves, we must come to the beginning of God. Let God be your motivator. Let God be the reason you wake up in the morning and you say, God, today is your day and I'm just here for the ride. Let God transform your life and watch the unstoppable force of the Holy Spirit use you in ways you could never dream or imagine. Chapter 10, Clint Reddy serves as the executive director of operations at River Valley Church, a multi-site church based in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Clint earned a BA in religious studies from the University of Minnesota, as well as an MDiv from Bethel Seminary. Clint has been married almost a decade to Annie, and they have three young children with number four on the way. When not at work or with his family, Clint enjoys cooking, traveling, and home remodels. For more, visit rivervalley.org. Chapter 10, In Leadership. Empowering young adults to lead in the local church. Making the news in today's sensationalized and rapid-fire climate can often be a pastor's worst nightmare. In the days of old, pastors and church leaders relished the opportunity to be featured in a feel-good story highlighting the impacts and accomplishments of the people of God, making a difference and defying expectations. Today, though, making the news normally happens for all the wrong reasons. Impropriety, arrogance, embezzlement, and a slew of other not-so-pastoral accusations flood the tabloids and mainstream news outlets on what seems like a weekly basis. And with each published story, Another high-profile and accomplished church leader has their reputation tarnished, legacy short-circuited, and ministry weakened. I remember talking with a friend recently about the ever-growing string of pastoral fits and stops, and it sparked an important question. Why? Why does this seem to happen at a disproportionate rate? In one tragic sense, maybe this has always been the case, and leadership blunders only appear to be ramping up given the hyperspeed of today's digitized news ticker. Or maybe something else is at play, which invites the next generation of leaders to learn from. What's gut-wrenching for me, particularly given the recent string of pastoral fails, is these are people who have shaped my own thinking, leadership, and life. I've been mentored from afar and up close by those who have ultimately succumbed to the pressure of leadership. And I feel a personal responsibility to be as vigilant as possible to not fall into the same trap. I also have an equally critically responsibility to do my best to help other young leaders run the race of leadership with integrity 
and longevity, a prospect that often proves easier said than done. We are taught, oftentimes by observable trends, that leadership is built on charisma, vision, impact, and anointing. Those are for sure important factors in leadership, but those qualities don't appear to be foolproof. In other words, something else is needed for leaders to really last and avoid the collapse that hits the floor of our world with a thunderous and humiliating thump. In one sense, none of us are immune to the fact sin and temptation are all around us, and the pressures and demands of leadership leave many of us in vulnerable situations. Leadership is not an easy road. There are tough decisions that need to be made, and the challenges of uniting people together for a common purpose come with stress and restless nights. Indeed, anyone with even one minute of leadership experience knows this is a tough road. But the rewards of leadership keep many of us going. Leadership can and does change communities. Leadership lifts people up and offers value and innovation. Leadership is the fuel to emerge through crisis and dream for a better tomorrow. Leadership is needed. I say all of this not so we leaders can admire our accomplishments and legacies. That may be what gets many leaders in trouble. Instead, the call of leadership is an opportunity to give glory and honor to God for using ordinary and flawed people to bring about solutions and stories that really do inspire others to believe there is more in this world than just pain, hurt, and discord. Leadership makes our world a better place, so let's not also pretend we should avoid it with a 10-foot pole. My prayer is that young, emerging leaders feel a gravitational pull to lead vision cast and care for others, but I also pray they move into leadership with a healthy dose of vigilance and respect for authority and influence. Stepping into leadership is about walking the fine line between confidence and humility. It's about being secure and grounded enough to ultimately not self-sabotage the opportunity to lead and direct. So if we're going to create space for the next generation to lead and grow, let's be the kinds of leaders who put a premium on character and community, not just competency and anointing. Uh, my leadership journey began, like many, w without much formality of expectation, training, or coaching. Take the ropes and learn from experience is typically the mantra, and no doubt I was on an accelerated learning curve in a prove-it-or-lose-it world. I read leadership books, I went to leadership conferences, I took development and preparation into my own hands, which sadly is the case for many young leaders. They rough it out, they watch others and mimic, they find their own scorecard, which isn't always a bad thing. Each leader has a unique flavor and style, and the last we need is more robotic clones in the leadership pantheon. But here's what became distinctly evident to me when I was in the thick of the leadership crucible. I realized that leadership has a distinct currency to it. It comes with something extremely valuable, and as we will learn, extremely volatile. Leadership always comes with power and platform. 
the power to make decisions, set priorities, make the call, and the platform to cast division, inspire and encourage, and bring about unity and alignment to a common purpose. Power and platform could also be described this way. Power does what it wants, and platform says what it wants. That can be a very self-centered way to understand and wield this currency of leadership, but ultimately that is what leaders must steward. They are very tangibly afforded something incredibly valuable. So the question, how do young leaders especially steward that well and avoid the inevitable pitfalls that so many sadly fall into? To answer that question, there may be no better place to do so than the words of Jesus. But before we get there, allow me to set the scene. The allure of power and platform can make people do some silly things. And that's exactly what we have transpiring with the sons of Zebedee, James and John. They are beginning to see a crystallized picture of the Jesus empire, at least in their eyes. Jesus is performing miracles, he's attracting massive crowds, his leadership stock only seems to be climbing, and so, in a likely self-serving attempt to get, on, get in on the action early, James and John go to Jesus. And what, uh, what they are sure to believe, with what they are sure to believe, is a simple request. When you sit on your glorious throne, we want to sit in places of honor next to you, one on your right and the other on your left. To put it bluntly, they were asking for their own share of power and platform. They were asking to be leaders. But they unfortunately missed the reason for the power and platform. They gravitated toward the honor, position, and glory of having the ability to say and do what they wanted. And in unsurprising fashion, their simple request ignited a firestorm among the other disciples. Mark chapter 10, verses 41 through 42. When the other ten heard of this conversation, they lost their tempers with James and John. Jesus got them together to settle things down. You've observed how godless rulers throw their weight around, he said, and when people get a little power, how quickly it goes to their heads. It's not going to be that way with you. Whoever wants to be great must become a servant Whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. That is what the Son of Man has done. He came to serve, not to be served, and then to give away his life in exchange for many who are held hostage. Jesus used this sticky situation among his closest followers to teach them and us something incredibly important about leadership. And it's a lesson we must teach the next generation in ways that we have oftentimes forgotten. Jesus ultimately came to inaugurate a kingdom that looks very different than what we sometimes gravitate toward. It's an upside-down, counter-cultural, even paradoxical kingdom. Think about it. Jesus said things like, the first will be last. If you want to save your life, you need to lose it. If you want to gain, you need to give. If you want to live, you need to die. His teachings are at the very least unconventional, and at the very most, they exude the untapped wisdom of God. Jesus tackles a vision of leadership 
in his teaching to his disciples, and it's a vision that ultimately stewards the power and platform of leadership in ways that bring about hope and renewal rather than heartache. In fact, his teaching is unsurprisingly built on another paradoxical truth of the kingdom. The truth is we can actually overspend the currency of leadership. If we aren't careful, we can actually wield our power too much. We can leverage our platforms too heavily, and in typical Jesus fashion, the antidote is to give it away. If I could be so bold, I truly believe there's a connection between how much leaders spend the currency of their leadership, the power and the platform, and a leader's likelihood of losing it all. To put it another way, going all the way back to the beginning of this chapter, I would offer that one of the main reasons we see a disproportionate number of leaders fall is because they paradoxically leaned into their leadership assets too strongly. They may have been carried away in the power and the platform of leadership to points where even they lost sight of what leadership is all about. If there is a cautionary tale for young leaders today, it's to remember that leadership is both powerfully effective and powerfully tempting. And here's why. Every time a leader uses his or her power or every time a leader exercises his or her platform, a little bit of distance grows between the leader and those he or she leads. That distance is simply a matter of how leadership works. It's the natural outflow of the fact leadership demands a certain pressure and responsibility. It's the leader who needs to make the call in the midst of the chaos. It's the leader who shoulders the blame for an organizational blunder. It's the leader who's oftentimes celebrated for wins and accomplishments. So the more the leader exercises power and platform, the more he or she puts on display their currency as leaders. They have something to steward, and in view of those who aren't afforded that currency quite yet, the gap between leaders and their teams can begin to become more apparent. So what happens if a leader continues to spend their leadership currency so that the distance between him or her and the team grows farther and farther apart? Well, very practically speaking, the leader's team may find it much harder to speak up when things seem off. The team may find itself in an environment where accountability becomes a farce, empowerment becomes an illusion, and service to one another quickly goes only in one direction, and that direction is up. That's what happens in a culture when the distance grows too far. And sadly, it's not just the culture that suffers. Ultimately, the leader suffers too. The leader no longer sees the world as he or she should, and pride will settle in. Favor becomes an inevitable promise, and vision can start to become ever so cloudy. cloudy power and flat platform start to become infected. And then another piece of currency starts to accumulate in a leader's hand. Privilege. If power is the ability to do what you want and platform is the opportunity to say what you want, then privilege is the right to have what you want. And that is incredibly tempting. Moreover, if privilege is left unchecked, it can grow the distance so far between leaders and their teams that the checks and balances of a healthy leadership culture simply wither away. In a culture like that, young leaders start to wonder, could I ever do that? Could I ever say that? 
Could I ever have that? When those thoughts start to float in the minds of young and emerging leaders, something has gone terribly awry. The leader has overspent the currency. The distance has grown too far, which is the antithesis of the movement of God. Where we attempt to drift farther apart, God's trajectory moves us ever closer to his people. It's a trajectory we see most powerfully in the person of Jesus Christ. He gave up the ultimate power, platform, and privilege of heaven so that we could know the true heart of God. The Apostle Paul says it like this in his letter to the Philippians. Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave, and he was born as a human being. And when he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names. And at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Here again we see another example of the upside-down kingdom. If you want to be elevated, go the way of the servants. If you want to be the greatest of the highest honor, go the way of humility. If you want to exercise leadership that lasts, then do the paradoxical. Give away your power. Offer up your platform. Say no to your privilege. In other words, make room for the emerging leaders. Go all in for the next generation. Set the table for their success rather than bask in the light of having to say, do, and have what you want. Before we wrap up, I want to make one thing abundantly clear. I'm not advocating for abdication or asceticism as leaders. The whole point of leadership is to use our power to make wise and godly decisions, to use our platforms to cast a compelling vision and to even use some of our privileges and opportunities to grow and develop. I'm not inviting leaders to neglect the immense responsibilities in front of us. What I'm inviting us to consider is that if we aren't careful, we can go bankrupt. If we don't intentionally and even radically give away to others the currency of leadership. Which invites us all into a reflective question. How am I setting up emerging leaders to share in the currency afforded to me? How am I creating space for others to make a call, share a vision, or participate in what seems like an undeserved opportunity? Moreover, am I giving away the power, platform, and privilege of leadership in ways where if the wrong call is made, or the vision's a bit cloudy, or if the opportunity is missed, then the blame doesn't rest on the emerging leader. Instead, the established leader carries that weight. It reminds me of what Jim Collins says in his groundbreaking book, Good to Great. He talks about how leaders need to look at the world through mirrors and windows. When things are great, the leader sees the world through windows. They see outward to the amazing accomplishments of the team. But when things inevitably turn south, particularly when things turn south in the well-intentioned giving away of power, platform, and privilege to young and emerging leaders, then the established leader sees the world through a mirror. And all you can see in a mirror is yourself. The mirror signifies ownership and responsibility. It showcases the fact that leaders will take the heat no matter the cost. We need to create those kinds of environments for our young leaders. 
a space to experiment, learn, grow, and contribute while still allowing them space to make a mistake and miss the mark. Let's be the kind of leaders who do that very thing. That's leadership like Jesus. We keep the distance close between us and those we lead, and we do. And as we do that, we build cultures of trust and honesty. We build environments of empowerment and investment. We build churches where the next generation can contribute to key decisions, inspire and teach others, and lean into opportunities for development and growth beyond their wildest dreams. Let's commit to that vision, a vision where established leaders wisely and paradoxically steward the currency of leadership. That is leadership that lasts because it's intentionally investing in the next while carefully stewarding the now. That's the future of leadership in the church, a future full of potential. Chapter 11, Chris Brown. Highly sought after pastor, speaker, and church leadership expert, Chris brings over 20 years of ministry and financial experience. He worked alongside Dave Ramsey for years as a national syndicated radio host for Life, Money, and Hope, and has been featured on national media outlets such as Fox and Friends, but most importantly, he has a passion and love for the local church and has served as a campus pastor at Elevation Church, an executive pastor and chief financial officer at Potential Church. Chris traded in the life of the city for farm life in Columbia, Tennessee with his wife of 21 years, Holly Brown, and their thir- three children. For more, visit chrisbrownonair.com. Chapter 11 in Financial Freedom. It was a gorgeous Monday, December morning in South Florida, and we were excited to be welcoming a new young staff member to the creative team at our church. His name was Philip, and when he arrived, the team was not only excited to meet a new co-laborer in the kingdom, but we were all elated that a new young buck had joined the team looking like he was ready to battle hell with a water pistol and do whatever it took to get this new Christmas stage and holiday set built by yesterday because the much-anticipated Christmas series was rapidly approaching that weekend. We were expecting 30,000 people, and it was daunting to think that they all would be expecting something spectacular. But now, we had just the guy who would bust through a brick wall to make things happen. We were shooting for the moon, and we were counting on him and all his youthful scrappiness to come through. And he certainly did. The stage and set were not only built in time, but it was done bigger and better than we had ever imagined. And we came in under budget. I absolutely love hiring young adults. Sometimes they get a bad rap, but there are pros and cons to hiring all ages. And one day I had a young, talented intern in my office and he boldly asked me for a raise. He politely but firmly stated that the amount that we were paying him was unfair. I asked him to explain to me his reasoning for why his ministry output 
and his value demanded more compensation. Well, he couldn't come up with any solid reasoning to support his request, but all he could talk about was his inability to pay his bills and to make a living. This was the day that I was resolved to help the staff and the church with their personal finances. I knew we were compensating fairly and within a comparable range as the secular marketplace for each person's scope of responsibility. However, I was seeing my team often hinting at needing more money in order to make their ends meet, especially the young adults who were figuring out personal finance for the first time. I had assumed that the schools had done a good job teaching personal finance, but that is precisely where I went wrong. I assumed, and I shouldn't have. Church leader, we have to help these young adults in the area of personal finance because history has proven that unfortunately, we can't rely on the school system or most of their parents. And we definitely know we want them staying away from any kind of financial tips from our government. Recently, I was talking with an economist who was celebrating the number of states in America that were requiring students to take a personal finance course to graduate. That increased from 17 states to 21. Only 21 states, only 21 states required the students to learn how to effectively manage the legal tender that would be going through their fingertips and checking accounts every day for the rest of their life. And he was celebrating. Yeah, Chris, but we're a church and we're not a school. I hear you. But this issue goes so much deeper than young people not having a grasp on basic savings and investing or knowing how to avoid paying heaps of interest as an adult. This becomes much deeper when you think of how many lives have been ruined by the mismanagement of personal finances. Let's just say it's many more lives than a lack of knowledge in the area of 11th grade physics or ninth grade woodshop. Finances are the number one cause of money fights in marriages today, and many don't realize that money is one of the few things that affects all areas of our lives. Finances obviously impact our relationships, but also affect our physical lives, our careers, and even our emotional lives. So it's obvious to see the case for the church stepping up in the void and helping guide young people toward financial freedom. But knowing the right financial levers to pull and when to pull those levers is not even the most important thing to teach them. We have to teach young people why managing finances matter, why it matters eternally. We have to teach them the bigger picture and what they get to be a part of. We have to inspire them to care. We have to give them a new standard than just having more money in the bank than their broke roommate. We have to teach them that every transaction is actually an opportunity to worship God. We have to teach them about the whole concept of stewardship and managing for the King of Kings. We have to teach them that stewardship goes much further than just money. It should be applied to our time, our influence, our relationships, our energy, our skills, and ultimately, our entire life. No matter how much of a stale church word stewardship is, the principle 
has never been more relevant to their lives. When they understand the why at a deep spiritual level, they will finally have a deeper reason to win with finances besides the shallow reason to be able to get the latest gadget, outfit, or four-wheel drive truck. This deeper inspiration will not only engage their interests, but it will also yield more consistency in their financial decisions. And then their newfound results will continue to inspire them and motivate them to continue. This difference in their life's trajectory from bondage to freedom gets me ridiculously excited. Imagine if we raised up a generation that never even knew debt. What would it look like to have a whole generation in a financial position to actually stand behind their lofty ministry intentions. I am more convinced than ever that being intentioned for ministry is nothing without being positioned for ministry. What would it look like if the church was in a position where every dollar had an opportunity for the future rather than an obligation to the past? Obviously, there are many financial concepts that need to be imparted in young minds. So where do we start? Do we start with budgeting? Nope. Do we start with saving? Nope. Do we start with investing? Nope. Giving? Nope. Avoiding debt? You guessed it. Nope. Remember, we have to start with the why. I remember the day that I really internalized that as a believer. I'd been literally knighted and trusted by God to manage this life for God. I can remember the day I really accepted the challenge to be a steward for him. That changed everything. Young adults need to start with understanding they have not and never will own a single cent and will never own a materialistic possession in their lifetime. They may temporarily possess something, but the deed will forever be in God's name. Psalm 24.1 tells us the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. If you look up the original word for the word all, original language, it still means all. Everything is God's, so we are not the owner. So, What are they if they're not the owner? Well, they're the managers. They manage for God. They've been given the keys and the trust, and God said, I trust you with this amount. If you're faithful with this amount of time, money, influence, energy, I will bless you with more. 1 Corinthians 4.2 tells us that those who are called to be managers should remain faithful. And faithful means managing money and this life for God's glory and not our own. A word of caution here. You may be reading this and thinking that God's ownership and our management is too basic. But the best athletes in any sport master the fundamentals. These fundamentals shape our mindset about finances. A steward for God is overwhelmed with gratitude that God trusts them with all they have and wants to honor God with every purchase. Someone who doesn't get the why deep down in their heart 
thirst after large purchase after large purchase. And whether they have the money or not, all they can think about is how much they deserve it or how hard they work. A spirit of gratitude and contentment towards money leads to financial success and a spirit of entitlement leads to frequent impulsive financial decisions. This doesn't mean the steward isn't driven. They're just remembering where the blessings come from and remain thankful as a result. Contentment should not be confused with lack of ambition or apathy. Contentment is a condition of the soul while moving forward. Entitlement is a tragic cancer in the Western world, and it is present in every generation. The teaching stewardship is the intentional treatment to fight against the crippling cancer that not only affects our wallets, but also our relationships and our careers. A great passage to challenge them with is the parable of the bags of gold found in Matthew 25, verses 14 through 30. It's a great exercise for us to put ourselves in that parable and ask ourselves, who are we in that story? And spoiler alert, we're not the master. <laughs> this idea of God's ownership and our management should be integrated into almost every teaching from any stage. To be a successful Christ follower in any area of our lives, we all need to understand that we're not in charge. We are just to be faithful for what he trusts us with. So once they fully understand the why, they will now be ready for the what and how when it comes to personal finance. So what does the average young adult need to know about the practical side of finances? There are so many financial concepts and principles, and there are so many different voices out there sharing contradicting opinions. Because of all the conflicting noise, many young adults just throw their arms in the air and just say, let the chips fall where they may, I only live once. This is all the more reason for us to inspire and instruct them in this area of life. In effort to make the whole area of personal finance a little less daunting, I have broken it up into two major categories. I'm sure these lists could be broken up further, but I hope you see how breaking it up can help keep this topic from being so overwhelming. The two categories are stabilize and structure. Most young adults will need to stabilize from mistakes they have made in the past or are currently making. A few young adults will be ready to start structuring for the future. All young adults should be exposed to all concepts from both lists, but most of the teaching time and energy should be spent stabilizing. Stabilizing. This is where you continually weave the concept of God's ownership through the topics of generating income, budgeting, saving, avoiding consumer debt, power of good relationships, and even generosity. Structuring, these topics get a little more tactical, addressing topics like insurance, mortgages, taxes, investing, retirement, compound interest, building a legacy. 
Since stabilizing is the most urgent in the Western world, let me break down some of the stabilizing topics. When it comes to earning money, young people have to realize at a very early age that their best tool to win with money is their ability to earn income. In other words, they will never win financially if they're lazy and don't work. This is where they can be reminded that work is actually worship if it's done with the heart of a steward. Work becomes worship when it's for purpose, not payments. Work should be about impact first and income second. This biblical concept comes straight out of ancient Jewish culture. When it comes to budgeting, young adults need taught that they will never hit their goals without a plan. In Luke 14, 28, Jesus uses a financial analogy that speaks to this when he says, Who would ever build a tower without first sitting down to count the cost? Zig Ziglar once said, If you aim at nothing, you'll hit it every time. John Maxwell says, A budget is telling your money where it should go instead of wondering where it went. And people ask me all the time, what is the number one thing I can do to turn around my financial train wreck? And I always tell them it starts with a basic budget. Before I started budgeting, I was spending 25% of our budget on food. And it was only my wife and I. That's a crazy amount of Chipotle. The budgeting process helps us correct the insane oversights. Obviously, debt elimination will be the big topic to spend time on. There's nobody better to teach on this than Dave Ramsey and Ramsey Solutions. You could point them toward their many free resources on their website, or you could offer classes as well. The key here is intensity. They can't just coddle and pet their debt with small payments. They need to get gazelle intense like Proverbs speaks to and kick the debt in the teeth by getting an extra job for a season and making double and triple payments. If they get serious, most can get completely out of all debt except mortgage in 18 to 24 months. Then the goal is for them to never go back. The borrower is enslaved to the lender. Proverbs 22.7 It doesn't sound like good stewardship to me. Once they get the debt out of their lives, it starts to get much more fun and they now can save a little so they can be prepared for the next unexpected expense that always pops up. We've all experienced either a flat tire, a broken air conditioner, or a rock hitting our windshield. These can either be an emergency when we have no savings or they can just be an inconvenience when we have money saved. Proverbs 21.20 says, In the house of the wise there is food and oil, but fools gulp it all down. Savings should not be confused with hoarding and greed, but a responsible act so they can be in position to provide for their future family, position to be generous to others, and begin to focus on structuring a godly financial legacy. And that skims a little of what needs taught to young adults. And I'll leave you with a final thought on the how we need to teach it all. Many pastors and churches don't feel comfortable teaching on money. 
but we have to see it as a tool, not a weapon. Money can either build marriages or bust marriages. Money can destroy dreams or develop dreams. There's nothing wrong with earning money or teaching on money. We're not worshiping the provision, we're worshiping the provider. Stewardship is managing God's blessings God's way for God's glory. And it should be consistently taught and modeled with conviction, passion, and taught in a fun, relevant way, like any subject taught to a young adult. When they get it in their heart, they will begin to get positioned rather than just intentioned. And they'll be able to be like Philip and show up at their future workplace or ministry free of financial bondage and free to be used by God in a powerful way. Chapter 12, Dr. Randy Jumper has worked with college students and young adults for over 20 years on college campuses and in local churches. He and his wife Heidi serve as young adult pastor at First NLR in North Little Rock, Arkansas. They have two daughters, Morgan and Bethany. For more, visit yaministry.org. Chapter 12, Intergenerationally. Why are there old people in your young adult service? That's a question I've been asked numerous times by visiting guests. They're surprised to find non-young adults there. Our decision to include multiple aged leaders comes from our commitment to build the kingdom of God and the local church, not just a ministry to young adults. Bill Hybels repeatedly said the local church is the hope of the world. While I believe Jesus is the actual hope of the world, I understand his point. Jesus uses local groups of committed followers, the church, to share the gospel and transform the world. As young adult leaders, our biblical mission is not to build amazing ministries, but to advance the kingdom of God and develop lifelong followers of Jesus. We don't just reach young adults. We need to keep young adults in the local church. College ministries, when we aren't careful, isolate from the overall church and short-circuit the mission. In 1888, Lewis Halsam revolutionized the textile industry when he introduced Aritex fabric. Today we call it mesh. Mesh's popularity soared when Adidas adopted it as its primary material for its shoes and apparel. Mesh's lightweight strength and permeability is achieved by interlacing strands of fabric. Each strand's individual attributes are exponentially replicated throughout the fabric. Wireless mesh networking uses a similar process by moving data across a series of interconnected, redundant distribution points called nodes. If one node fails, another connected node compensates for lost efficiency. The more nodes on the network, the more stable the connection and the data flow is preserved. If one area goes down, network integrity is maintained as connections are already replicated. If you want to keep young adults connected to the kingdom and the church, you're going to need multiple connection points for them. You need a strong, adaptable, meshed leadership network around them. You'll have to connect them to more than just other young adults. 
Growing Young's study of groups reaching young adults found that no church reached young adults with only one person or one ministry. Each part of the local church should view itself as one node on the mesh working together. As a young adult pastor, I want to develop lifelong followers of Jesus who are connected to a local church. If they only follow Jesus while young adults, I have done something wrong. Young adults want these connections. They want to learn from people of various ages and backgrounds. The discipleship process is a continuous journey of personal transformation. We all build on the work of others, or in the words of Paul, some plant, some water, but we all are co-workers in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. On the day of Pentecost, Peter quoted Joel 2 when he said God's spirit would be on both old and young. And it's fair to ask, how will the dreams of young men and women inspire older generations? And how will the visions of older generations guide young adults if they're never in the room together? I don't want to be a part of a dreamless church or visionless church. We need intergenerational connections in our young adult lives. Who do you need to help you in the reach young adults? Well, a strong meshed ministry will integrate sages, leaders, mentors, peers, and healers. Okay, you're going to need more than that, but these are my favorites, and, well, this is me writing. Sages who reach back. Young adults who grew up in church have existing relational connections with former spiritual leaders. These leaders have banked years of influence. They serve as sages, wise leaders guiding through new paths of life. Sages establish a ministry of presence in the lives of individuals. A ministry of presence occurs when you decide to be intentionally present and active in the life of a young adult. They may walk away of their own volition, but they do so in spite of our presence in their lives. Our presence communicates our readiness to guide them, forgive them, and welcome them home like the father waiting for the prodigal son. A lack of presence communicates our disinterest, our lack of compassion, and judgment. Brian Dollar has been the children's pastor at our church for 21 years. Dozens of former children's church kids now serve in ministry with him as young adults. They still go to him for advice and help. Why? They remember fondly their days in children's ministry from Pastor Brian, and now they do it with him. Leaders who reach down. Church leaders reach down to young adults during the young adult transition into adulthood. Research of young adult dropouts revealed over half of them left church because of a pastor or another church-related reason. Church leaders are the linchpin for intergenerational discipleship. Many older leaders question whether their age makes them irrelevant to young adults. And this is simply not true. Growing Young said it this way, quote, While there is certainly some value in having young leaders who can connect with young people, it's not the whole story. When interviewed, participants from our study were asked why their church is effective with young people, and only one in ten mentioned having young leaders. When they asked young adults why they attended their church, only 13% identified relevant leaders, while 87% identified authenticity of leaders or other type qualities. Age and relevance are factors. But authentic leadership overcomes age difference. 
in writing this. I asked one of my young adults to read it. Rose, a 21-year-old young adult, wrote this on a post-it note in this section. Quote, read all the way through. I enjoyed reading it and it made me think. I think that young adults do not necessarily need a church to think like them to attend, but need the love, respect, and guidance that Jesus has modeled for us. He didn't always agree, but respected them. Love trumpets relevance. Respect beats trendy. Care conquers cool every time. And if you aren't a young adult, I hope you'll get this one important takeaway. Jesus-like love, respect, and guidance are more important than anything else, and you can do it. Why? Because young adults need authentic, accessible leaders. Doug Clay, the superintendent of the Assemblies of God, said, Today's young people value authenticity. If those around them are too self-protective, these young people don't trust them very much. Older people are impressed with the size of a person's dream, but the younger generation is looking for the authenticity of the dreamer's heart. While some are skeptical of authority and institutions, authentic engagement bridges the chasm of distrust. Kevin, a 21-year-old college senior, experienced a major life crisis. Kevin had grown up at First Assembly, and during the crisis, he reached out to Pastor Rod Loy. Pastor Rod has been a part of pivotal moments in Kevin's life. He dedicated Kevin. He baptized Kevin. Every summer, to connect with students, Pastor Rod was the youth camp speaker. At high school graduation, he received a letter from Pastor Rod committing to be in his life. So, of course, Kevin called Pastor Rod when he was in trouble. Mentors who reach within. Young adults seek intergenerational mentorship because they desire relationships with experienced people. Positive mentors ease the complexity of traversing young adulthood. Mentors pull out the gifts and talents of a young adult. They model life skills and teach from experience. Watching married couples interact and parent is more valuable than lessons on relationships. Observing how leaders handle conflict or disappointment works better than telling them how to do it. When she was a student, a campus ministry leader instilled Bible study in Rachel. After she graduated from med school, she transitioned from a recipient of college ministry to a young adult leader herself. Students appreciate her firsthand knowledge of the college system. Medical students receive advice on vocational and educational development. She champions spiritual development through the Bible studies that she leads. They eat at her house, they go shopping with her, and they sit in church together. They watch how she coped with the death of a family member, managed the challenges of a marriage, two young children, budgeting money, and all other areas of life. And as a mentor, she reaches within them and helps them become who God wants them to be. Peers who reach across. Intergenerational connectivity doesn't mean only having older staff. Peer interactions are essential. Relationships are central to young adult life, and peers are the basis of the new authority structures in young adult lives. Not surprisingly, 68% of churched young adults and 45% of unchurched young adults said the opportunity to receive advice from people with similar life experiences is very important. Picnics, movie nights, meals after services, game nights, and other activities have a place in young adult ministry. 45% of young adults connected to church identify personal relationships rather than programs as the reason they are still involved. 
The activity is not as important as the relationship developed. Give young adults the opportunity to lead and watch them soar. Our group is young adult-led and young adult-driven. Allowing young adults this opportunity benefits them and the long-term health of the church. We are a leadership laboratory for our church. In the last 20 years at First NLR, our young adult leaders have become pastors, missionaries, board members, discipleship group leaders, church staff members, and a host of other key positions. Their leadership benefited their peers, but it helped them prepare for future leadership. Healers who reach around. Moving in adulthood is challenging. During this period, young adults need a loving community to embrace them. Reaching around young adults requires expressions of affirmation and relentless patience. Words of affirmation, celebration of positive steps, and genuine care convey the sincerity of our feelings toward young adults. Saying I love you and meaning it is imperative in young adult ministry. Nearly three quarters of young practicing Christians say there's someone in their life who encourages them to grow spiritually. Healers beat back voices of self-doubt and condemnation as they are vocal champions, the loudest encouragers and affirming friends. The power of touch cannot be ignored. Studies show that personal touch and words of affirmation lower stress. And while James may have had something different in mind in James 5.14, when the elders of the church lay hands on the hurting, they embody this important principle. Reaching around young adults takes relentless patience. We care about them more than the inconveniences and their gap of maturity creates. It may be difficult to get our arms around young adults, but healers do it anyway. A meshed ministry carefully and loosely holds young adults close. And while each person plays an integral part in retaining young adults, just like mesh, when we are interlaced together, we keep more of them. When a young adult distances himself or herself from connection points, another is ready to repair the connection. Sages, leaders, mentors, peers, and healers are valuable interlaced intergenerational parts of meshed ministry. The meshed network maintains integrity and connection with young adults. Intergenerational, interlaced connections don't happen naturally. They require intentional recruitment of volunteers. But how do you get them, Randy? What can I do? I'm the only one on my campus or the only one in my church. Who can I get? Well, let me suggest five steps. And if you are in a campus ministry, I get this will be harder. And I suggest you find a church and plug in there. Adapt these steps to your context. Find ways to bring experienced leaders into the lives of young adults and connect to the church. Number one, take the first step. If you don't ask, you won't receive. Go to older believers and involve them. Early in our ministry, we occasionally joined the senior adult Sunday school class. We'd bring breakfast with us, and I'd introduce a young adult and tell their story. Then I'd ask them to pray for our young adults like they were their grandkids or kids. It was powerful. We did the same with other groups. Number two, keep your leaders engaged. If you're in a local church, inform your leaders what is going on and invite them to your activities. Ask key leaders to speak or join young adults for meals. When exciting things happen, share the news. Give your lead pastor the opportunity to be involved as much as she or he wants to. 
If you isolate from your church, you'll be left out of key decisions. But when you include, watch opportunities present themselves. Number three, go to their stuff. As a leader, you need to model interlaced connections. Go to senior adult activities. Visit married group classes. Use church ministries as ways for young adults to work together. When appropriate, take young adults with you. Number four, allow them to contribute. This is one is more challenging. High caliber leaders want to contribute. You'll have to find ways to help them do that. You'll have to ease them into this by providing opportunity and information about young adulthood and clear assignments. They won't stay if they feel like they are just an add-on. Number five, share your young adults. Make sure you model intergenerational connectivity in your ministry. Promote ministry involvement with young adults. If you are greedy with them, you send mixed signals. Celebrate when they join the choir, work in the nursery, or volunteer in kids' ministry. Strengthen the mesh network with multiple connections. Rather than keeping students and young adults siloed in separate ministries, encourage students to be active in our other aspects of church ministry. Young adults want a level of familiarity while expanding their horizons. They need familiar faces of past sages and leaders. When I asked Charity why she struggled with coming back to church after a time away at a Christian university, she responded, everything seemed different. Nothing was the same. I expected church to be like it was when I left. It wasn't. It just felt strange. In the same conversation, Charity mentioned our church also was, quote, missing out on some brand new worship songs we are singing at school, end quote. She suggested we update our music. Charity wanted old wine and new wineskins. She wanted familiarity and trendiness. No wonder we struggle to create environments young adults desire. Ultimately, the connections to former leaders kept her coming back. Surround your young adults with interlaced, intergenerational mesh systems. When you do this, you ensure the visions of old men and women will be shared with the dreams of young men and women, and you'll have a robust mesh network to keep young adults. Chapter 13, David Marvin is on staff at Watermark Church, where he serves as the director of The Porch, a weekly gathering of thousands of young adults. He and his wife, Callie, live with their children in Dallas, Texas. For more, visit watermark.org slash ministries slash The Porch. Chapter 13, in volunteer teams, give it away. I lead a young adult ministry in Dallas called The Porch. It consists of a few thousand 20-somethings gathered on Tuesday nights in Dallas and in additional 15 satellite locations around the country. One Tuesday, after I had finished teaching and the service was over, I went out to see the porch late-night party that some 200 volunteers who lead with us were hosting. There were food trucks, games, live music, fire pits with s'mores being roasted, and young adults everywhere talking and hanging out. As I walked, another person on my staff came up and I asked him, who set out these fire pits? He didn't know. I asked him about who called and arranged for the food trucks to be there. 
He didn't know. Two of the people who were responsible for leading our ministry had no idea who had made all of this happen. Why do I tell you that? To show how grossly negligent we are in leading? No, although that's not a crazy conclusion to draw. I tell you that because that was an example of a principle that has shaped our ministry for years. A principle that if you apply, will transform your ministry, allow you to reach more people, run at a more sustainable pace, focus your energy on what you're most competent and where you're most needed. A principle that sadly, so few ministries put into practice. Ready for it? Give the ministry away. Raise up volunteers and train them, equip them, inspire them with heroic vision and empower them to lead and serve. Then give the ministry away. Don't just do ministry to people, do it through people. After all, you're called to equip your people and unleash them for ministry. Look at what Paul says in Ephesians chapter four about why Christ has put you in the role you are. So Christ himself gave pastors and teachers to equip his people for the works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. That's Ephesians chapter four, verse 11 and 12 and 13. Your role is to equip people in your church so that they would be unleashed in lives of ministry. The verse above is not the entirety of your job description as a pastor, but it is a crucial component of your role. That night, I didn't know who'd called the food trucks, but someone had. Someone not on our church staff and someone who'd been empowered and given the leadership of throwing an amazing party. Had I been in charge of doing that in addition to teaching that night, leading the ministry and leading my staff team, there would have been no party. Or if there was, it would have been an awkward, boring, and embarrassing one. Now, the question you are likely asking is, how and to who? Maybe you're thinking, I don't have hundreds of volunteers hungry to serve. Maybe you don't, but you do have someone. My guess is more than you are currently deploying to their full extent. But whatever your situation, here's how to give the ministry away. Identify. Kyle threw parties for a living, like who's who of Dallas parties. He had just come to faith in Christ, so Kyle went from running parties at the clubs to running them at the porch. Abigail had been divorced. She had an abortion she had never told anybody about and a bunch of relational baggage, but had just come to Christ. Abigail used her story and her past decisions to be one of the best pastors of women attending the porch we've ever had. Caroline grew up as a Hindu for most of her life. She didn't really know what she believed about God. What she did know is that corporate America was a place she could find her approval and success, which she did and became the youngest VP at a large bank, but it still left her empty. She attended the porch one Tuesday, heard why, and had recently come to Christ. Caroline used her operational gifts to help oversee multiple volunteer teams and engage people weekly with the gospel. The above three stories of leaders are just a few of those who God has raised up and used in mighty ways for his kingdom. Each had leadership gifts, but needed to be discipled, poured into, and then unleashed for Christ's kingdom. You have them at your church or in your city, people with leadership gifts. Sure, they may need to be led by you and discipled by you before they're ready to lead. Sometimes you can see right away they have the gift of leadership. Other times, they're just fat. By that, I mean faithful, available, and teachable. F-A-T. Fat people have the qualities that make for great leaders and servants. Why? Because according to the Bible, great leaders, by definition, are servants. See Mark chapter 10, verse 42 through 45. 
invest. People spell love T-I-M-E. There's no quick fix to develop people, but the return for time invested in discipling and developing your people is greater than the cost by far. If you have identified someone with passion and leadership gifts, invest in them. If you have two people who fit that description, invest in them both together. Meet weekly and pour into them. Invite them into leading with you and pour into their lives. As you form a leadership team, pour into them. Go on retreats, make memories, form unique shared experiences where you laugh and create memories. Invest. Each volunteer that serves at the porch goes through eight weeks of weekly training, followed by a three-day in-town mission trip before they graduate and become a volunteer. They memorize Bible verses, get equipped to share their testimony in 30 seconds and three minutes. They shadow each of the six teams who get specific feedback from the leaders of those teams. They memorize the Romans Road. They receive equipping on how to enter a gospel conversation and more. That doesn't need to be what you do to prepare and train your people, but you should be doing something. What is it? How are you investing in your people? and volunteers, and raising up the body of Christ. Inspire them. There was a pivotal moment in porch history, a moment that changed the course of our ministry. We'd only existed about a year, and there was only about 150 people attending, and about 25 to 20 volunteers. The previous leadership had just left, and the ministry was in a weird place. Those serving were not inspired. They were basically just doing service and volunteering in order to make friends. Then one Tuesday night, we gathered all the volunteers together and said, guys, we're going in a different direction as a ministry. We're not looking for people to park cars, the usher, to stand at a door. We're looking for pastors, for evangelists, for people who want to reach young adults in this city for Christ. We're starting over. So if you're just here to check a box, thank you. But while you are welcome to keep attending, we will be ministering to you and not through you. But if you believe the Bible is true, Jesus is the hope of the world, and you want to give your life to bringing that hope to young adults who are lost in this city, come join us. That day, we fired everyone. I mean, everyone. But since that day, we've never had more people interested and willing to serve. We now have a waiting list to get trained and become a porch volunteer. Now, what changed? Vision. Young adults, like all people, are starving for someone to call them to greatness, to give their lives to something bigger than themselves, to be inspired. Stop begging people to serve and start inspiring them with the opportunity to be a part of reaching the lost and impacting the world around them. Here are five C's that I use to talk about casting vision to inspire your people. Number one, cast vision convincingly. As a part of the body of Christ, you have the greatest mission any group has ever had. The means by which God reaches lost people and stops them from going to hell. Believe that. Let that sink into your heart and into your mind. Remember and share that with those that you lead. Remember what is at stake. Number two, cast that vision consistently. I can't just say the vision once and expect people to get it. People have to be reminded on the vision all the time. It leaks. Someone once told me that I can know that I've said something enough when people begin to make fun of me for saying it. 
You should be casting vision to your volunteers of your values and your mission and your target and your goal constantly. Number three, celebrate the vision being lived out. What's celebrated is repeated. Celebrate when people are sharing their faith, living on mission, leading, initiating, whatever the responsibilities you've empowered them and unleashed them to do. When they're accomplishing their goals, even if they fail, celebrate them. Number four, communicate that vision personally. How your heart is moved by the mission. Don't try to be someone else. Say it in your voice and be you. Number five, cast vision heroically. Don't tell them to just hand out doors or hand out cards at the door. Remind them, you're not just standing here at the door handing out a bulletin or handing out cards. You are handing out hope to hurting people who are going to walk through these doors. Help connect the dots between how small acts of faithfulness are a crucial and important part of the mission. As anyone in leadership knows, casting inspiring vision is not enough. Unless after that vision is cast, you also empower them to live it out. Empower them. One big mistake that is often made in ministry world is a failure to empower volunteers. To not just hand a bunch of tasks out to volunteers, but hand out authority and ownership with those tasks. I've talked to various churches that won't allow people to order pizzas unless they're on the church staff. Pizza? Are you serious? If you don't trust someone to order pizza, either you have trust issues or they are grossly incompetent and only Jesus can help them. Hand over ownership, decision-making, responsibilities, and authority to trusted leaders as often as you can. While I understand not handing over ownership at an event to a seven-year-old in your ministry, in the context of young adults, that would make no sense. But I work with young adults who are investment bankers. They run nonprofits. They're vice presidents of advertising, CEOs, head coaches. In other words, corporate America knows these people. They know what they have it takes, have what it takes to lead to execute, to own and run things. Why is it that when they come into the church, they're treated like kids again? There are 12 volunteer men and women who oversee the six porch serving teams, a guy and girl porch team. They have been empowered with enormous responsibility to oversee dozens of volunteers, tens of thousands of dollars in certain cases, They create all of our social media assets, all of our graphics, all of our videos. They plan events with almost no staff oversight or approval needed. They are unleashed. People will buy into what they speak into, hand the ministry over to them, coach them along the way, cast vision, and then let them own it. What if it's terrible? It may be. In fact, something they plan or some idea they have will be terrible. But if it's not sin, We're going to harm the reputation in the ministry, then let them act and coach them afterwards. Empower them. Encourage. The day your volunteers are discouraged by our leadership or your leadership is the beginning of the end for your ministry. In other words, the fastest way to tank your ministry and chance for God to do something significant in your church is to have volunteers that are not encouraged. Discouragement from leadership can happen for a lot of reasons. Sometimes it's because of a lack of empowerment, a lack of vision, a lack of celebration for how God is at work, a lack of verbal affirmation, a lack of clarity, and a lack of relational capital. But as far as it depends on us, we're called to live out Hebrews 10.24 and through encouragement, 
spur on others towards love and good deeds. How are you encouraging your people? Are you consistently communicating through your actions, your gratitude for them, your celebration of how God is using them, your appreciation for the ways they're using their gifts to honor Christ and make him known? Let me give you two examples for how this plays itself out in my ministry. Number one, Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 video. Every Wednesday, I start my team meeting with what has become known as the Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 phone call. Basically, I have my team on my staff throw out answers to this question. Who is someone in our ministry that you're thankful God has provided and raised up to serve with us? The team throws out various names and begins to fight over someone that they think we should call and encourage. And eventually we reach a consensus on a person. I then pull out my phone. I record a one minute video with the entire team and then we send it to that person. It's easy. takes very little time. It involves me just celebrating on video the ways that we as a staff are celebrating them behind their back. The response to these videos astounds me as they mean so much that they often elicit tears of joy. Something so simple and easy, communicating so much. Number two, intentional communication. The other vision I share at least once a year is related to my staff team's communication with our volunteers. I remind them that these people don't work for us as a staff. We work for them as those we're called to equip. See Ephesians chapter 4, verses 12 through 16. We should be very intentional to communicate how much we value and appreciate them with our words. So the below is an email I send out regularly to my staff team instructing them on how to communicate through email and be strategic and intentional when it comes to communicating with volunteers. Here's the email. Team, I'm reminded how important it is to empower and encourage our leaders. Remember, vision leaks. Remember that our leaders are co-laborers. They're the elders of this ministry. Essentially, we cast vision for them and give direction, but it's like we report to them. So in every communication with them, we should include the following. Gratitude. Simply say one specific thing you're thankful for. For example, as you're communicating to volunteers in the email, say something like, I'm grateful for each of you and the way that you make your teams more fun. Or, I'm so grateful that you've given your life to this ministry and to seeing lost young adults reached and believing our generation can change the world through Christ. Vision. Every email should also include vision, as in what could be. Remember, we don't simply make asks or assign tasks. We say what could be and give direction. Asks are for assembly line workers. We give direction and inspiration and empowerment. For example, including something like the following in your email. Can you imagine what it would look like if each of our volunteers were placed on teams that directly aligned with how God wired and made them to serve? For this reason, we don't want to assign anyone to a team until they've gone through our training program to help them discover, develop, and deploy their gifts, inspiring them. Number three, celebration. Celebrate where you have seen God on the move. For example, include something like, and praise God, this past Tuesday, 12 people trusted Christ. Or, man, I love walking out and seeing all the people having a blast at porch late night. Way to go. You're creating environments for prodigal sons to come home to their heavenly father. 
I don't know what it looks like for you, but every email and constantly your communication, you should be celebrating them. Number four, ask for feedback. Invite them to speak into what we're doing. As you communicate, always invite them to speak into any ways that they think we could improve or build on the ideas and direction you may be providing. For example, may something like, including, as always, if you have thoughts on any of this or anything that we're doing, we want to hear from you. In your communication, you've got to be intentional to express gratitude, cast vision, don't assign tasks, celebrate them, and ask them for feedback. As our leaders are encouraged and motivated, our volunteers are encouraged and motivated, the ministry gets better. And it will continue to be a challenge for all of those elements to be in every communication we have, but you can do it. Stay short, stay concise. To say that I'm grateful for all of you would be an understatement of the century. I wouldn't want to do this without you. Thank you for giving your life to this mission and help serving and help being the best team in the world. Sincerely, David. Again, that's just an email that I regularly, at least annually, put in front of my staff team to be very intentional about how they are communicating with our volunteers because discouraged volunteers will tank your ministry. Intentional communication is just one component of encouragement. But the importance of encouraging those you lead could not be overstated. How are you doing at creating a culture of encouragement? Final thoughts. I don't know what your ministry context exactly looks like, but I know God wants to use you to minister to people through people. You can't do it alone. Give the ministry away. The mission of the church quite literally depends on it. Don't feel bad for unleashing the saints for the work of ministry. Feel responsible for it. Because the truth is, we are. So let's go do it. Identify people, invest in them, inspire them, empower them, and encourage them. Thanks for listening to this special recording of Reaching the Next, 13 Ways Churches Can Engage Young Adults, read by the authors. To find out more about Young Adults Today and for more resources, visit us online at www.youngadults.today. You can also access our blog, conference, podcast, this ebook for free, this audiobook for free, and order paperback copies of this book on our website. Special thanks to Mike Miz for allowing us to use the rights to this song in between each author's recording. Special thanks to Jimmy Leisure for the book cover and graphics. Special thanks to each contributor. And special thanks to our editor, Jerusha Will.